Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the precious decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason. Prince Bill, I'm not your enemy. Ming is, and you know it yourself. Ming is the enemy of every creature of Mongo. Let's all team up and fight him. That's right, listeners. For our 50th movie episode, we will be discussing the 1980s space opera Flash Gordon, starring Sam Jones, Melody Anderson, and Max von Sydow. Directed by Mike Hodges, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 51 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Flash Gordon, an outer space fantasy adventure, is based on the world-famous comic strip, which comes to life with action, romance, comedy, and music by the popular rock group Queen. When energy waves pull the moon out of orbit, threatening destruction of the Earth, Dr. Hans Zarkov makes a desperate rocket flight with two unwilling passengers, Flash Gordon, quarterback of the New York Jets, and lovely Dale Arden. Their destination is the planet Mongo, the source of the strange energy waves. Ruling over Mongo with primeval brutality is Ming the Merciless, who must be destroyed. Only one person can do it. He is Flash Gordon. Yes. So that was What's on the Box. Oh, yes, it was, Bill Bant. Happy 50th episode, my friend. Thank you. And to you also. What? A, thank you, sir. What a way to celebrate by doing the one, the only Flash Gordon. Flash, savior of the universe. Flash, he'll save every one of us. Flash, he's a miracle. King of the impossible. He's for every one of us. Stand for every one of us. He'll save with a mighty hand every man, every woman, every child with a mighty flash. He'll save every one of us. Just a man with a man's courage. He knows nothing but a man, but he can never fail. No one but the pure in heart may find the golden grail. Flash. Ah. Let us remember this as Flash Gordon Day. Ah. And move on to our earliest memories of the movie. Jason wanted to start us off. Dive! Oh, dude, I, I'm just absolutely thrilled. This is one of the greats. This is why we do this. We, uh, that's the only reason why we started this podcast, I believe, is just to talk about Flash Gordon. Is that not correct? Yes. This will probably be our last episode because I don't know what we're going to talk about after this. I mean, really? Is there anything else? Bill Bant, speaking of earliest memories of Flash Gordon from 1980. I want to say I saw this in the theater, especially coming off of Star Wars in 77. And I still can't even remember if I may have gone to see Star Wars again when it was re-released in 78. So this is a couple of years later. And now I'm only seven years old. But I know this was on my radar because here we go. Similar story, right? It's the hero's journey. Save the girl. Defeat uh, the evil, imperious Darth Vader type. I mean, in Ming the Merciless, it's all, it's basically the same, a lot of the same archetypes, a lot of the same mythology. And we will get into that a little bit later. Obviously, George Lucas was inspired by Flash Gordon. That's uh, well documented. So 
this was on my radar and I remember that and wanting to see it desperately. And I also recall that my dad was a fan of the original 1936 serial featuring Buster Crab as Flash Gordon. It was fun kind of, and I know you did this as well when we talked offline, doing a little bit of research and going back and watching some of that, which is, by the way, totally available to watch on YouTube and various streaming platforms. Uh, it's great to go back. You can watch the original serials, the, the original TV series, and there's it comes in various formats and different versions. But uh, the 1936 version, there's a 1940 version, there's a 1954 version. But it's great to go back and watch the black and white stuff and to see the original. And just a little, I'm going to step on some trivia here real quick. Did, I didn't realize the Buster Crab, the original Flash Gordon, or live action Flash Gordon, I should say, was an Olympic swimmer that he won a gold medal in the 1932 like, Summer Olympic Games. It's crazy. I still have a VHS cassette that my father gave me, which is the Buster Crab rocket ship. And that's what they were called. It's an hour and 20 minutes, maybe somewhere, somewhere around there is the total running time. But it's the actual entire 13 chapter serial of the, the 1936 is just put all together. It's edited together and they called it Rocket Ship. So it's like one giant compilation on this VHS tape. I still have that somewhere, which is just awesome to have. Here's the thing regarding earliest memories, because I mentioned Star Wars and Star Wars for me was the first and became that to which all else would be compared. Thus, when I did see Flash Gordon, it just wasn't quite up to that standard. It, there's just no, it's an impossible standard to meet. And yet I, I liked a lot of it as a kid, of course. There's so much to like as a, a young boy. Uh, I know I remember, di I digested the rock soundtrack by Queen much differently when I was younger. It took a while to get used to for me. I was probably desperately seeking John Williams, of course. I mean, this is just the zone I was in. And obviously that changed over years. I'm a big Queen fan. But at that time, it was like, ooh, this is, this is different. Like, we're mixing up some genres here. There was that. And I think that lent itself to this strange feeling that I was getting when I watched this as a seven-year-old kid. I, I thought the movie was kind of campy before I even knew what campy meant or what camp meant regarding a film style and or genre. Also, speaking of how this movie made me feel as a young man, a young boy, this is one of those movies that I recall definitely made me feel funny. Just like when Flash was sitting next to Princess Aura, uh, how she was making him feel funny, if you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean. Because this movie is sexualized. Uh, there's no question about it. it. There's no way of escaping that fact. And that's okay. It's just part of it. And I remember Princess Aura, speaking of which, uh, she was definitely my first bad girl that I was into. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll always be an Elizabeth Shue guy. But Princess Aura made me feel like, what? What? who is she? Is something unique and dangerous and naughty. And she's, and I, I like that. I like that. Uh, so <laughs> she was, she's great, uh, Princess Aura. So that was one of those things that, you know, it's a coming of age thing. If it's a young boy, you're watching this going, oh, they're introducing a new, a different element into this, this genre that I was not exposed to previously. So that made me feel a certain way. Another early memory, the wood beast on planet Aborea. Oh, yeah. Freaked me the fuck out. Gave me nightmares. Scared the hell out of me. 
Uh, I've always been partial to a city in the clouds, so I'll always remember Bolton's floating city where he and the the Hawkmen reside. You know, obviously, very much resembles Bespin, right? In the Cloud City and Empire Strikes Back. So here's something that freaked me out as a kid, too. Like, th- this movie just really, really ran the gamut from of extremes and feelings and, and different things that I was trying to digest as a kid. Plytus's eyes bulging out of his mask when he's thrown onto the spikes on the rotating platform yeah. in the floating sea. That's yeah, a memory. That's yes. a big memory of mine. That freaked me out as a kid. Not only is his eyes bulging out of his face and mask, but his tongue is sticking out and it's and then his body deflates. And I'm like, okay, stuff of nightmares for a kid. Absolutely. And then, of course, not too long later, I was like, that's the coolest costume ever. I want that. And I still do. <laughs> I want to wear, I want to be Clytus for Halloween. Oh, that'd be a cool costume, yes. But definitely then, of course, uh, which is previous to that moment, the Prince uh, Baron and Flash duel with the whips on the wheel, uh, that, uh, again, that rotating spinning like platform with the spikes, you know, extending and, and uh covering over space I, all of that that whole thing was just always a big memory of mine. that jumps into my mind when i think of this movie i also remember that i had this movie book as a kid i think i might have gotten it actually as a christmas present and i think i still have it as a collector's item and it was just a really thin book but it just you know the big type print that a kid can read easily and it has all the pictures from the movie so i was definitely a fan of this as a kid uh i mean i still i'm you know, I watch this movie, it brings the kid out of me. And I adore this movie to this day. Uh, and it was just strange because this movie didn't take off, of course, the way like Star Wars did. So there wasn't much in the way of merchandising. So it's kind of like, I, I wish I had more Flash Gordon stuff and I need to collect more stuff. I still would very much want more Flash Gordon uh, merchandising right now or swag or collector's items to this day. I've remained a fan and uh, here's the my last and earliest memory is that I wanted to be Flash Gordon, man. I wanted to be Flash Gordon. I still want, I want to be Sam Jones and Flash Gordon. Both. So what are your early memories, man, of this incredible cult classic? So this movie came out in December of 1980. I was days away from my eighth birthday. And my dad was like, hey, I'm going to take you out. He's like, we're going to the movies. And I'm asking him, what are we going to see? And he's telling me it's a surprise, it's a surprise. So I have no idea. So we go to our local cinema, the AMC Orleans 8. And he was actually taking me to see Popeye. Ah. And we got to the movie theater and I saw on the marquee that Flash Gordon was also playing there. And I'd seen the trailers on TV for Flash Gordon. And I knew a little bit about Flash Gordon, not a lot. I mean, I kind of knew who he was. I knew Ming, but I really didn't know anything else about Flash. But I just remember the commercials look really cool. And that's what I wanted to see. And I started begging my dad, like, Dad, can we see Flash Gordon instead? Can we please see Flash Gordon instead? And I can kind of tell he didn't want to see it. Uh, He really wanted to go see Popeye. He's like, all right, let me check the times. And he goes to check the times. And Flash Gordon was going to play 15 minutes later from when Popeye. And I just kept begging him, Dad, I want to see Flash. I want to see Flash. I want to see Flash. And he's like, fine, we'll see Flash. And so he gets the tickets for the movie. So, you know, we're waiting. But I, I just kind of tell this isn't what he wanted to do. 
but we're here. So, so we go sit in the theater and, oh man, I was just blown away. I was just blown away. It's the same thing. It's, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you have this Star Wars experience and all those worlds. And now here's a whole other set of new worlds and characters and, and situations. And like you, the music, I love the music right away. I really didn't know. Oh, you who, did. who, I didn't really know who Queen was. Like they made a big deal with Queen. Yeah, and, not you at know, all. I had heard another one bites the dust, but I, if you asked me who it was by, I had no idea. Right. Right. But the music I thought was just amazing. Yeah. The same thing in the temple with the uh, tree insect. I was curled up in a ball when that scene was going on. I was scared shitless. Even that whole thing in the swamp. Oh yeah. The whole scene where uh, Zarkov gets his uh, mind wiped. That scene freaked me out too. I totally agree. That was scary. But uh, I had such a great time seeing that movie and it was so much fun. And it really started like a like a new bond between my dad and I, because yeah. my dad would then nickname me Flash all the time and not necessarily a term of endearment. It was kind of like, hey, Flash, did you finish your homework? And like, no, we'll get to it. Or did you clean your room? No, well, Flash, go get to it. So it was always kind of that. <laughs> okay. And then anytime, because here's the thing on HBO too, like HBO used to actually show mu- music videos between movies sometimes. And they would play flash gordon theme all the time with the video with queen and it would come on my dad would like hey flash gordon themes on i would just run you know from upstairs or wherever i was just just to watch the music video just because i love that song so much right to me it's like the greatest theme song ever i mean are you even in college like we would play intramural volleyball we would blast that song before we would go play our games like our ra would run out she's like Oh my God, can you please turn it down? Like, come on, we got a volleyball. We gotta we gotta win. We need we need the music. But that was like my pump up song for anything. A hundred percent basketball. hundred percent. Yeah. It was Flash's theme. That was a huge thing today. It just it that movie just left a mark on me. I mean, I could just remember being in front of the theater to this day. It's almost like I went yesterday. That's how much I remember the movie experience of going to see this. So movie. vivid. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, you got me excited, Matt. That that was great. I, I love your enthusiasm because that that's what this movie inspires in so many. It's mm-hmm. almost it's hard to say that this is a cult classic, not because it isn't. It's because it feels like so much more than that for so many people. It's this is a very important film. Yeah, there's generation. so many fans. Oh yeah. You know what I was just watching, speaking of, uh, was the 2017, I didn't watch the documentary, I watched a trailer for the documentary from 2017 called Life After Flash, talking about a lot of what happened with Sam J. Jones, which you've seen? Yes, I was going to mention at the end, if you are a fan of the movie, it's a must watch. It's a must watch. Yeah, I'm just going to tell the fans uh, out there of not just this movie, but to also our listeners of this podcast that we're probably going to be stepping all over a lot of trivia and stuff because we're just real big fans of this movie and a lot of things are going to tie into one another. But when we were talking about how important this movie is, but you just watched the trailer for that documentary entitled Life After Flash, and you see how important this film was, not just for fans, but like big filmmakers and actors at like real important industry people that grew up with this movie and how it shaped their artistry over the years, not just George Lucas, but 
Yeah, because they show clips of the uh, think of the trailer. It's like James Gunn, Robert Rodriguez. You know, yeah, exactly. So filmers like that who are around the same age we were when they went and saw this and just what an impact it had on them. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And I'm glad you were such a fan of the soundtrack from the get. And I, speaking of what I was going to ask you at the end, and I'll just say it now, is the Flash theme, one of the best hero themes in film of all time. Is it in the top 10? Is it in your top five? Is it number one? Because it is that awesome. I sometimes wish I was an athlete. Like if I was a football player mm-hmm. and I somehow made sure like my nickname was Flash and I was going out there in the fourth quarter and that would be playing in the stadium just to listen to everyone go fucking nuts because it would be like, we're down by three. Bill Flash Bant is going out to quarterback and, and take down that winning drive and just everyone just like scream at Flash. I like dream about that. You know what that made me think of is if this is what I would like. I would like to be the closer in baseball. Yes. Have the, the door open to the bullpen. I wouldn't even walk out. I would wait. I, you just hear the dun, dun, mm-hmm. dun, 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 and I would wait. And then as soon as the first flash comes up, then I'd walk out. Yeah. And just like. And, People and, would go crazy. They lose their minds. And it's interesting because we talk about like sporting events and how you get the, the uh, let's get your heart pumping. Let's get everybody amped for the game type of music and you hear such great songs i mean i went i was in chicago and watched watch bulls games and that had oh, one yeah. of the great songs uh you have uh now you'll hear there's a song from the dark knight even hans zimmer is playing and it's like yeah that's awesome or uh wild thing speaking of like for major league right yep. that was his thing that I mean, what a kick-ass close or uh what was uh uh, oh my God, Mario Rivera's uh, theme that he'd come out. It was a, a Metallica song, right? That he was would come out I think so. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's just completely badass, right? Yes. And then, of course, another one bites the dust. We are the champions. Speaking of Queen, you would hear that ad nauseum at games and it never got old. You're stomping your feet. We will, we yep. will rock you. And the whole thing, that's Queen. Why isn't Flash played all I know. the time? I was like, game? how are you not an athlete and try to take that nickname? And then when I come out, that's what yeah. I want you to play. It's, but it, it really is. It gives me chills every time. If I haven't heard that song in a while, it is the most inspiring music. I'm in, I'm just instantly like Tom Brady, just going, let's fucking go. Like, let's fucking go right now. Let's put the pedal to the metal. Let's floor it. Let's run as fast as possible and run through a brick wall and uh, save the universe like Flash Gordon. Hell yeah, man. Uh, It's just great stuff. You got me pumped, man. You got me amped for this. Let's let's go. What's next? Initial thoughts. Yeah. You got more podcasts to do. I'm just like, I just know. Let's stop. I'm going to watch the movie again right now. Everybody pause. Watch the movie. We'll talk about it some more. Right. (laughs) No, no, we're not stopping. We're not stopping. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I thought about this a lot watching this again this is probably the longest period i've gone without seeing the movie yeah right it's been a couple years since i've seen it and it's funny that you mentioned this earlier on about the the camp aspect that totally went over my head to be honest Mm -hmm. i was just caught up in the story and what was going on the music but i think this is the first time watching it that I, i was thinking to myself oh Okay, I can see why the critics didn't like it so much. 
this is the first time I think because I was trying to be more critical for this podcast that the flaws were starting to show a little bit. That's interesting. Yeah, I have a, a similar but different take at the same time. But I still enjoyed it tremendously. So oh, then yeah. I, I just kind of thought to myself, so what was it about this movie? And I think it's one of those things where we've kind of talked about this in the past is I was the perfect age for this movie. I think a lot of stuff with movies is the setting, your age. And it was just so engrossing to me because I wasn't worried about all that other stuff with character development or effects were cheesy or not. It was, here's a cool character in a cool place doing cool things with some cool music and there's these girls that are really hot and they're wearing like next to nothing. And before girls were icky and now I'm kind of <laughs> like, Oh, geez. Whoa. Yeah. I usually don't see girls like this unless we're at the beach. Right. So it really was just a product of when I was and where I was with this movie. And I was just able to enjoy growing up because then you would just meet so many other people who just love this movie. It was just, beloved to them and the character and you know and then when that movie ended and you see the question mark and you're just like oh my god there's gonna be another one and <laughs> right. you're still waiting for it to happen it was a staple on cable tv and you would just see it all mm-hmm. the time and we lucked out being how old we were when star wars came out see i think star wars though i could have probably been older and enjoyed it as much as i did seeing it the first time right i think with flash gordon I think I was just the right age for it. And that's, you know, even though there was scary elements of it now and, you know, watching this, I'm like, God, I wonder if it was released now, it'd be PG-13. Yeah. Yeah. That's Yeah. I wonder. And I wonder if I could have convinced my dad at that point to go see it. Yeah. It has some slightly adult content in there for sure. It has some sexual situations. Right. And see, none of that stuff I got at that point. Cause I'm I'm not even, I'm not even eight years old. I'm just, Oh, Aurora, she's just all over flash and, Right. See, that was the thing is that when I was saying you're just you're really touching on some and making some really great points. And when I was saying I knew this was different from Star Wars and I wasn't sure why it was like I there's something that felt like it was a little bit cheesy, but I couldn't put, put my finger on it. And I wasn't as sure that I cared like you were saying. And then with those again, like the uh, sexualized nature of this movie. I knew it made like, uh, I just love these beautiful, sexy women in it. And I didn't quite totally uh, digest or understand what was going on, but I knew it was making me feel a certain way. And it was fun. It was different. It was fun. And I, you just make a really good point of the then and the now, because watching it then, it was just rock and roll, literally and figuratively. And then now watching it, with an appreciation for a lot of the unintentional camp humor and genius. And that's the way I see this movie now. And because of, we'll get into it a little bit more throughout this podcast is the issue with tonality, the tone of this movie and what it was meant to be, what it ended up being and how it actually is kind of perfect in its flawed nature. It's a perfectly imperfect movie. And that's why it works. And it's hard to describe, but 
Good call, man. Um, just we did come around at the right time as uh, kids to see this. I even think going back, you think about Prince Baron, you know, played by Timothy Dalton, who'd go on to play one of my favorite James Bonds. I remember watching in the theater, hating him, hating him. He was mm-hmm. he was a bad guy up there with Ming and Cletus at that point. And then just to see him turn, that's not something I saw a lot in movies at that point. It was you started the movie good, you ended the movie good. You started the movie bad, you ended the movie bad. So to see someone change, that was a big deal to me too at eight years old. It was one of my favorite moments. Yeah, so, like I was so excited when they're fighting on the combat this. I'm like, get him, Flash, kill him. And then he, you know, he changes like, whoa, what's what's going on here? Wait, he's fighting with Flash now? This is this is crazy. Wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Did you want to continue on with some other initial thoughts? No, that's all I had. Yeah, again, just going back to the music, as soon as this movie started, man, and I, I just can't get enough of hot hail. Oh yeah. Because we get we we hear this wonderful voiceover. It's a conversation between Ming the merciless of planet Mongo discussing uh, what to do about earth with his uh, general Kalitus, his right-hand man. They're going to destroy earth for fun. And Ming is uh, wreaking havoc by starting earthquakes and uh, tornadoes and what's called hot hail, which is great because I've never seen that before. I've never heard of hot hail before. It sounds dangerous and it's basically falling Lava rock, which I guess is broken off pieces of the moon, according to Zarkov. I don't know. I don't really give a shit. It's hilarious. It's great. It's amazing. But see, that's the thing. It's like watching it now. It's funny, right? But it still works because there's such a great mixture of it still looks good. I'm watching this in HD today going, man, some of this looks great. Boy, some of this looks terrible. What a great mix of great and terrible. Yeah, I still love the sky, the manga sky, that swirling color. I'm like, oh, that's just great. If it was like this on Earth, that our skies were like that, we wouldn't appreciate it. Right. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's swirling again. People go out and watch sunsets and sunrises and stuff because you only get that fleeting moment. But to see something that beautiful like all the time, Mm. yeah, we wouldn't appreciate that. (laughs) I love looking at the sky watching this movie. That's so cool. Oh, absolutely. Whether it be the sky in the beginning when... Oh, yeah, that rolling red. We are now introduced to our protagonists. We have Flash Gordon, quarterback of the New York Jets, and Dale Arden, travel agent, who are on the same uh, charter plane flying from Dark Harbor, which I think is supposed to be somewhere in Canada. But regardless, they end up by chance on this plane together, and there are two pilots flying them to their destination. And this is in the midst of Ming doing his worst uh, from a distant planet in the universe of Mongo. And uh, when he's doing this stuff, then the, the sky turns red and the clouds are swirling, like you said, and it's just cool. And the pilots get sucked out of the plane, which you don't see. They just allude to it, but that happens. And then Flash has got to land the plane, but just, you know, anyway, what do we get in that beginning, man, with the hot hail happening and the planes is just the queen, the flash. And it's just I love it. And even before what that scene what I was talking about, I love the opening credits. I forget that they show the clips from the old comic strip. I know. I loved it. What a great that's a stroke of genius right there. Just showing that they're paying attention or giving some homage to the original comic strip right there, I think was smart. 
Yeah, and they're almost giving a little bit of the story through the strips too, because mm-hmm. you see the, the shot of like Flash Gordon as prisoner and the Hawkman in there, and yeah, it's like that. That was no pun intended, but Flash Forward. You do see those images, uh, Bill. Here's an initial thought. From now on, I'm going to wear a form-fitting T-shirt with my own nickname on it. I just love that Flash shows up. Oh with yeah, a T-shirt with his own name on it. Actually, if you read the book. This is the only part of the book I remember because I've mentioned this in podcast before when I had to do book reports, I would just go to the library and get the book adaption of movies. That way I've already seen the movie. So I already know most of the story anyway, and then just read it. So in the book, that was a shirt that was given to him from a female fan, right? Custom made that shirt for him. Yeah. I'm like, this dude's got an ego, but it was a gift. It was a gift. Right. But then I realized I don't want to be too hypocritical here because I'm sure you and I are going to be wearing our own all eighties movies, podcast t-shirts soon enough. True. Anyway, I uh, just thought that was funny. And because I always remember that I remember that's the shirt he wears in the beginning. I'm like, but it never hit me as a kid, like a kid as it does now. I'm like, man, boy, that takes a, we just figured out everybody did that. <laughs> right. Went home. Where's, where's my bill shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my Massick shirt, man? I know what I want for my birthday now. I want a Bill shirt. Yeah, one of us is Massick, and I want lightning bolts through it. So I here I'm going to step on trivia right away, but this is something I was looking for the whole time because we know now. I'm, I'm not going to. We're not going to get into it here in depth, at least. But if Sam Jones's dialogue was dubbed, it was a great job. I'm looking for it the whole time whoever the impersonator slash actor was whom we do know the name at this point, but I was just watching his lips. You know, this is just an initial thought because I was like looking for that upon this rewatch, knowing what I know now and the trivia and background. And, you know, over the years you hear about this stuff, they did a great job. I know not all of his lines were dubbed, et cetera, but we'll talk about that more in length later. Uh, Like I said, it looks great in HD. Sure. You can spot some flaws, there's a great there's a great moment in the beginning, I believe, when you see Zarkov's rocket ship uh, traveling through different galaxies towards Mongo, and you actually see that stop motion frame. If you're watching it, oh, it's like right, HD. Yeah. It's that square that's around the ship, and it goes click, 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 click. Yep. You know what I mean? Because you can see it in certain frames, like in original, um, let's say, uh, what what's prints of like Star Wars or things like that. You can see it sometimes around some of the spaceships. Uh, It's the frames where it's kind of that, it's the stop motion photography and you can see it's one frame at a time. Uh, So you see it's like a slightly grayed out square around the ship. But I was, I kind of like that stuff. Man, just the the conceptualization was really sound because if you know the origins of the story, they really stayed close to, and you and I talked about this offline, to the original comic strip, to the old serial. The look of this is pretty damn close. Like the characters, the costumes, the planets themselves, the ships oh, yeah. are really quite close. And they, yeah, is it over the top? Absolutely. Is it cheesy? Absolutely. But it looks cool. Like yeah. you can, it's very tangible because of course at this time, it's 1980, we're not getting CGI. It just looks like cool models, which is real. And you can see the detail in those models. And it just is like, this is fun, man. I was yes. like, yeah, I, I want I want War Rocket Ajax. I want that model. Give me that ship. 
Yeah, some great models, some great matte paintings in this movie. Yeah, I love Hell them. Yeah. Give me the Volton floating city, man. There's so many things like I, like props and things I'd love to have from this movie. Love the comic book nature of the movie. Like I said, just the conceptualization, but they're playing, they're paying homage, but they're incorporating a lot of this stuff in here, whether it's purposeful or not. You know, uh, well, some of it, you know, they're just staying true to the story with the names of the people and places because it it may come off as slightly cheesy, but this is how it was back in the day. This is where it all originated from. And you get names like Ming the Merciless, Prince Voltan and the Hawkmen, Prince Baron of Aborea, like it's a tree planet, like it's a forest planet, or Aborea. It's so on the nose, but it yep. works. Uh, Princess Aura, she has an aura about her, right? Oh, yeah, she does. Oh, yeah. Planets, uh, the moon, the the individual moons of Mongo, which are like worlds unto themselves, are Aquaria and Phrygia. We mentioned Aborea. So it's like, I wonder what those are. Phrygia? Yep. The cold, the, like the ice planet, you know, uh, Aquaria. I wonder if that's a water planet. You get things like the thought amplifier. <laughs> that's, that's a classic sci-fi. That's so old school. So I love those aspects of it. This is just another initial thought. I adore that shit. It works for me. And again, I mentioned this is a great, you know, boyhood story. It's the hero's journey. It's a classic. It's a timeless story where it's just a, a guy gets plucked out of his everyday life and has to go save the universe. Man, the constant sexual innuendos, the plays on sexuality and sensuality, Princess Aura uh, in particular, the pheromone ray from Ming's ring. Uh, that he shoots at Dale, Dale and she yes. does a little bit of an, an erotic uh, massage of herself, I guess you could say. Which was over my head at that. Oh, yeah. Initially. Yeah. But you're watching it as an adult today. Well, yeah, you just see that. Oh, oh the goodness. ring has got power. That's all. Is this? Yeah. I never realized until later on that he was technically massaging her when that mm. was going on. Uh, yeah. I missed that. We get uh, Flash in a his uh, black leather, holy shit, short shorts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the dude's pretty much naked outside that I mean, it's just great aura you know taking him to her secret pleasure moon or well she's offers to take him yes. she's she's taking him to arborea to see prince baron uh so that baron can potentially help him and vice versa but she seems to be about to take flash to pleasure town in the middle of this uh that scenario or sequence of the movie you got Ming and his concubines. You got Clytus, who's doing some weird sniffing of a scarf. Is that a scarf? The black thing that he raises yeah. up to? Like, was that, did that belong to Aura or whom did that belong to? No, that was his. And it's just his. Uh, yeah, I, I read about some, I was like, who did that belong to? Why, why does he keep sniffing? Even, even the is, director was kind of like, what is he doing? But I'm going to keep it. And on top of this, sexual sensuality etc there's uh there's a torture sadism and allusion to sadomasochism in this film as well there's that aspect of it there's a lot going on in this movie so that's a another initial thought enough of that great examples of camp and the thought amplifier when they're basically sending their thoughts to one another they can read each other's thoughts this is uh, Flash Gordon sending his thoughts to Dale and they're saying things like, I am sending this thought to you, Dale over. And then I have to go now, Dale, I'm hanging up. That's what he says in his thoughts. And we hear the voiceover. Yes. It's just like, Oh my God. 
uh, can't get it. He's new to it. Right. Later on, when they get reunited in Prince Voltan's uh, floating city, uh, she says to him, boy, have I got some crazy stories to tell you. And he says, save them for our kids. And she's like, oh, I accept. Would you leave us alone? I just got engaged. There's lines that are just batshit crazy. Like, what are you what are you even talking about? Super over the top campy. At the end, this is a wonderful moment. Just another example of the campiness. I'm just this is another initial thought regarding the campiness of this film. And I think it's purposeful. It's I'm clearly purposeful. At the end, during the big wedding between Dale and Ming, there's a ship flying in the background carrying a banner or that's trailing a banner that reads, all creatures will make merry under pain of death. Because that's just how cruel Ming's rule is. And it's just really funny. It's poking fun at it. Great stuff. Uh, but then another, you know, this is get, just gets back to the, the heart-pumping music of Queen. It's, for me, my favorite, uh, man, when Dale speaking to Aura, and just it's the all is lost moment. She literally says, I'm lost, Aura, and nothing can save me now. And it cuts to freaking Flash on his rocket cycle. And yes. that's where you hear the Flash. And it's the, the it's like oh, yeah. the, I literally was pumping my fist again, and I'm going watching the movie, going, "This is it. This is what the movie is for me." That that moment right there. Hey man, I could listen to Brian Blessed laugh all day. What a great robust delivery and guttural belly laughs this guy has. Love that actor. He plays Steals Prince every scene. Every scene he's in, and. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, as a kid, got Brian Blessed and John Rice Davies confused all the time. As did most the, people. Yeah, who you know, John Rice Davies played uh, Sala and yeah, why aren't those Indiana two in a movie together as like brothers? God, that would have been awesome. But uh, of course, Brian Blessed has the iconic line that Gordon's alive. So <laughs> he has so many wonderful lines, and I'd be remiss if I don't. Give a shout out, of course, to the great Max Fonsito, who is perfect casting. Oh, my God. Shaves his head, goes the full nine in this part. That's got to be top 10 casting of all time. Yeah, for for supervillains? Yes. Yeah. They nailed that. He's perfect as Ming. I know they're talking about trying to do it. I don't know who the hell you're going to get to play Ming. No one's going to be better than him. I, You know who I actually thought of? Who would be like a probably much younger version, but if you put on the that like styled mustache and uh, goatee, and if you shaved his head because he has a thinner face, right. would be uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought could uh, pull it yeah. off with his voice. Yeah, he'd be a good choice. But yeah, it's tough to to match Max uh, Max von Sydow. Uh, uh, he's just cruel, menacing, but he has a touch of fun. He's having so much fun in this part. Yes. And you know, Chewing so up if you read some of the research, he had read it and he, he was a fan of the serial, of the comic and everything. And he was like, yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm in. Let's do it. So those were some initial thoughts. We can get into uh, our next segment now. Okay. So our next segment is favorite scenes are moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Flash Gordon? So I tried to keep mine in order throughout the film. So my first one, it's kind of a long one. It's basically the entrance of Ming to the football fight. Oh, yeah. So the movie starts off, as we mentioned, 
Flash and Dale get on this plane. The plane crashes where they meet Zarkov. And Zarkov is the only person that really knows what's going on. We're being attacked by an unknown entity somewhere out in space. I've built a rocket ship. We're going to go up there and stop it. I don't know how he thinks he's going to do this, but he's at least he's on the right track that he knows what's happening. I love this beginning because it's a shit ton of coincidences. Oh, yeah. And nothing is explained. This is it, audience. This is what's happening. Here we go. And it's awesome. <laughs> but the Let's thing is, go. too, if you read the original comic strip, it does the exact same thing. Uh-huh. The original Buster Crab serial. It's the same thing. The plane crashed, happened to run into Zarkov. This happened. To, yep. And you're getting on a ship and we're going out to outer space to save the universe. What? We don't know, we don't okay. know what we're seeing, right. but we'll just do it. So they get to Planet Mongo. They're now prisoners and they're going to be brought to Ming. So they're in the main hallway and we see all the people from all the other moons that are there. And it's a tribute day. So everyone's supposed to show their, their tribute to Ming. The first one's the Hawkman. Right. To present their ice jewel from Phrygia. Which they supposedly stole from Prince Baron. So almost a little fight's going to break out. But Clytus is like, no one dies in the main hall unless Ming tells you to. So right. you just know right there, like, all right, this, this guy rules with an iron fist. And then we see the people of Ardentia and it starts off. Like he literally says, like, we don't have anything to give you because you blasted our people. You tortured us. You've enslaved us. We have nothing. All we can give you is our loyalty. And Ming just is like, oh, that's that's great. Like, how how loyal are you to us? And he says, without measure. Right. And Ming just says, fall on your sword. Show me how much you mean to us. You know, as a kid, like, what, what does that mean, fall on your sword? What, what, what does that mean? And so Ming's basically asking him to sacrifice himself to show that they support Ming. But this is the first time you see that people are getting a little fed up with Ming. Right. And the, the prince goes up there, pretends that he's going to stab himself and actually tries to kill Ming. But Ming has his ring and literally freezes the Ardentian prince right there on the throne. Right. And runs him through with the sword. Literally take the sword out of his hand. It runs him through. And we get to see the blue blood. Yes. Many color blood in this movie. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I wonder if Evil Dead stole from this. Maybe. And at that point, Flash and Dale and Zarkov are all watching this. And Flash mentioned, this Ming is a psycho. <laughs> <There's like> this, <laughs> That's a great campy line. Yeah. So. And there's this orb that's floating around and yeah, it's he a repeats, hovering. yeah yeah i don't know what it's called but he repeats flash's line and at that point they present themselves to ming and that's when ming basically explains to them hey every thousand years i pick on a planet i decide to pick on yours and i was going to leave you alone but now that you're here your planet's screwed and then at that point ming's got the eye for dale mm-hmm. and he asks her to come forward and flash is like nope not gonna happen but Ming's got his ring, and that's when he brings Dale forward, does the little, makes her do the little sensual dance. And at that point, Ming decides that Dale's going to be part of his concubine. And Flash is like, no, that's not going to happen. And then we have the amazing football fight scene. Oh, my God. With the guards in the great queen. It's, yeah, it's one of my favorite tracks of, of music. Oh, absolutely. And the guards, of course, start kicking the shit off Flash because he's outnumbered. It's like 12 to 1. And there's like these these giant egg-shaped objects. <laughs> and Zarkov rolls one to Flash, and he's in a daze, and he sees all the guards running at him, and he's like, oh, 
football and literally starts playing football against them and starts kicking their ass. And it's just awesome. And you can see all the other people in the audience are kind of helping Flash without helping him. Right. Yeah. Prince Voltan is helping out a lot. So they're like tripping some of the bad guys and hitting them over the head. Yeah. I don't know who the, the little people are. They're like stabbing them with their swords and, and whatnot. Right. And Flash is pretty much taking over the fight. And he's, t- he's taking these egg-shaped objects and just whipping them at the guards as footballs and knocking them all out. And he's really getting into it. And then, unfortunately, Zarkov's a little too fast on the handouts and knocks Flash out with one of the the eggs Yes, and fight over. Ming says, you've embarrassed me and we're going to publicly execute you because of this. Zarkov's going to work in my labs and Dale's going to become one of his concubines. Yeah. Part of my pleasure team. Right. But yeah, I always love the music with the football fight. I must have watched just that scene alone so many times. It's just a lot of fun. Oh, and it's it's batshit crazy, but it is a, a blast. And you're right. The music kicks in. And it's one of those, again, one of those let's go moments. Totally gets you pumped up. You're watching this going, wait, he's going to use his football acumen and athleticism as a kind of form of fighting. And it's so choreographed. And it's great. And you get Dale as a cheerleader. Oh, yes. Go, Flash, go. And you're like, oh, my God, this is really happening. And it's hilarious. And then one of my favorite parts, because they start forming up in a like a football formation. The bad guys do the the let's just call them Ming's henchmen in uniform. And at one point they're getting their asses kicked by Flash and they kind of go and huddle around Clytus. And Clytus is telling them, no, you need to get into a position like this, which is the, what is it, the three-point position? Would you? Yeah, three-point stance, yeah. Like, how the hell would Clytus know how to get the, what the three-point stance is football is? But at the same time, you have Ming, who's concerned because his henchmen are getting his, their asses kicked, leans over to Clytus and says, hey, are all your men on the right pills? What a great line. Yes. And it's like, oh, I guess they have steroids and HGH and, uh, you know, yeah. doping also here on Planet Mongo. But he has that great follow-up line, too. Maybe you should execute their trainer. <laughs> it's a freaking blast. And it is so goofy, yeah, with the end with uh, Zarkov hitting Flash in the head with one of those giant Fabergé eggs and knocking him out. Yeah, because he didn't take a bigger punishment from the guards in the beginning than getting hit with that egg. Oh, yeah. Flash is getting his ass kicked until he uh, realizes, oh, I can utilize my football skills. Because he is, yeah, after all, quarterback, New York Jets. Yes, the fact that he even introduces himself to himself. that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he identifies himself. It's great. That's his job. Because Ming would be like, oh, really? Yeah, why don't you play on Sunday? Like, yeah, he says it very much so. It's like, you would know what that is, right? Yeah. Don't you know who I am? I'm Flash Gordon, quarterback, New York. Yeah. Great scene, man. And there's a lot going on in that one, for sure. And a uh, great introduction of the characters. You know what I also I love about that scene, man, is speaking of the production design, the set design, I would love to actually just exist or walk onto that set of the of Ming's basically throne room, the steps up to his throne, but also like the hall. It's basically the, the the entire hall. The look of it is great. When they yes. walk up the stairs and the entire wall slides up and it's just darkness beyond, it's very cool. I thought the design was excellent. 
very, very uh, saturated colors, the deep reds. It's all very over the top, but I love that stuff. Uh, yeah. And it's great watching it on HD today. Yeah, and just seeing Ming just slowly come up the stairs to the top. Oh, and the angles that they're shooting this at, too. We'll get into the, the DP. It's the same guy from Star Wars. It's insane. I didn't even know that. And there's just some great shots. There's some real production value in this. And I have a total newfound respect for that. If you know, I didn't have respect for it already, but great scene. Great stuff, man. My first favorite scene is, I'm just calling it the Wood Beast. Oh, yes. That's, I, I, I had that earlier. down too. Yep. Scared me. Yeah. Scared the shit out of me as a kid. It's still creepy as hell because it's just frightening because you immediately put yourself in the shoes of anybody that has to go through this ritual and or test. And uh, I will get into what that is. So cut to this is Arborea. This is the forest slash jungle slash tree planet where Prince Baron and his merry men uh, reside. And Princess Aura has taken Flash Gordon to the planet because potentially Flash Gordon can now seek the aid of Prince Baron. Because the idea at this point is that we need to get a team up to go up against Ming, the Merciless, Clytus, and all of their baddies. So once they get onto this planet, Princess Aura and Flash Gordon are going to Baron's central area and... It's cool because it's, you know, all in these high, like they look like these giant trees and they're obviously hundreds of feet in the air. And there's these uh, platforms that that are like circular. They go around the tree trunks and they kind of walk around the paths and walk across the the bridges and they get to Baron's uh, like lair. And there's this like sacred area where there's this basically a severed tree trunk in the middle of this circular area this sort of platform, this is way up high in the trees and it's all foggy and it's mysterious. And we understand from Princess Aura that there is an initiation happening. It's a ritual, it's a coming of age uh, ritual and a young gentleman uh, has to pass this test. So we have this, like I said, kind of severed tree trunk that has uh, basically several holes in it that you could reach your hand and arm into Uh, to reach inside of the tree trunk and residing within the tree trunk is where the horror lies. And it is a sort of gross, slimy, bulbous creature that is basically half scorpion. It has a tail that extends upward with a pointy spike at the end, which we can assume is quite poisonous. And it makes a like rattling, slithering, gross noise inside of this tree trunk. And the idea is that in order to pass this test of manhood, you either, I forget what the, the main shaman basically says, but he says something to the fact that you will either pass into manhood or into the life hereafter as a result of what happens next. Because you get to, you have to choose which hole to reach your hand into. And if you aren't struck by the creature within who will stick you with its pointy end and poison you, if you do not get stuck, then you survive. You pass the initiation, you pass the test. But if you do get stuck, then you are poisoned by this creature. It basically stabs you like in the hand or wrist area and that poison will go into your circulatory system i assume 
which then causes eventual madness and uh, you don't want that. So we watch this young boy go through the ritual. Unfortunately, he does get stuck by the creature within the trunk, what they, we call the wood beast. And he immediately begs Prince Baron to end it now. He does not want to fall into madness. So Prince Baron draws a sword and summarily kills this poor kid by stabbing him. So that's horrific. And Flash watches this and he's like, oh, this is a bunch of friendly guys here. Uh, this is great. And then, of course, Princess Aura, who is, by the way, dating Prince Baron. They're like a couple. She's like, uh, hey, Prince Baron, that was fun to watch because she's a sadist, I guess. Yes. And that's a thing. And Prince Baron is like, you came. And she's like, yeah, I promise. Like, I keep some of my promises. And they kiss and they're all lovey-dovey. She's like, I brought you a present. Here's Flash. Here's another stud that I'm bringing yeah. into the scene. Don't be jealous, but be jealous. Uh, so Prince Baron's like, what the F, man? And why would you bring him here? And now uh, if I harbored this fugitive, basically, it's I'm a traitor. It's, a, and so it's an issue. Flash Gordon shouldn't be there. He doesn't see what the long game is here at this point. Regardless, Princess Aura makes Prince Baron promise that he won't kill Flash. Just to keep him there for the time being until she comes back. And he has to keep her promise. It's like, okay, I won't kill him, whatever. She leaves. And of course, immediately Prince Baron decides, well, I can't kill you, but I'm going to keep you my prisoner and I'm going to torture you a bit. So he puts Flash and a bunch of other guys into a cage, lowers them into the swamp, where basically they're going to tire and drown at some point. And then Prince Baron starts talking to his guys. They're like, is there a way I could get rid of this guy without actually killing him? And he devises a plan, busts, Flash out of the cage, gets him back up to the wood beast. So we get two wood beast scenes in this movie. Yes. If one wasn't scary, we get two. So we're like, uh-oh, Flash has to face the wood beast. Oh, no. Our hero, the ultimate trial. And Prince Baron says, well, this here's the game. You reach your hand into the trunk. You pick a hole. I'm going to do it. I'll show you. I got big brass balls. I'm going to put my hand in this hole over here. And he doesn't get stuck by the, pre the wood beast. So he pulls his hand out. He's like, I'm a tough guy. What about you? Flash sticks his hand in. Nothing happens. He's like, all right, your turn. They go back and forth. And then Prince Baron changes the rules and makes Flash go twice in a row. Flash sticks his hand in and is, oh, no, he gets stuck. But how? And then he's like, just end it now. I don't want to succumb to the madness. Prince Baron is about to draw his sword and Flash is like, aha, I tricked you and grabs the sword from Prince Baron, then runs off. And anyway, the would-be scene is great. It's scary as hell because you put yourself in the character's shoes. I, I don't want to be brave enough to stick my hand into a hole where I knew there was a creature that could potentially kill me with one strike. It's gooey, it's gross, it's dark, it's sweaty, it's moist, it's deadly, it's insane. And that I still love the scene because of the, the production design, the way it looks, the way it's lit. It's well acted. I love the turn when Flash pulls a fast one on Baron. So there's a lot of aspects that I like. And there's just a lot of twists and turns with, throughout this because we like, who's on whose side here? Who's, how are these guys and these characters going to team up eventually? Because once Flash gets the best of Prince Baron, he escapes, but not for long. He falls into like quicksand and then there's another creature. And then Prince Baron thinks he's got the best of Flash. But then the Hawkmen show up. It's like, oh, my God, 
It's just one thing after another. Love the wood beast scene. That's my first favorite scene. Yes, I had that down as one of my favorite scenes too. As I said in the beginning, I remember seeing this as a kid and totally freaking out because it says in the beginning that Prince Baron and Flash are going to stick their hand in this tree stump. One of them is probably going to get bit and you don't know who it's going to be. And the tension, the music, and it's just great. And the seven-year-old in me got fooled when I thought Flash got bit. And I'm like, the guy's going to die. Is there some kind of cure they're going to find or something? I don't know what's going to happen. Right, yeah. And he pulls the fast one on Prince Baron and then takes off. And of course, he tries to escape on a Boria. And I think he gets like 30 feet before he runs into the quicksand. (laughs) I feel like before he runs into the R.O.U.S.s. Yes. Uh. (laughs) But I love that too, because for me as a kid, Anytime we were playing, there's sand, quicksand. So the quicksand in movies were always a highlight for me. I always loved there being quicksand in movies. So the fact that he sinks in the quicksand and just that when he sinks in and he just had the little tuff of blonde goes in last. <laughs> I always love the way that shot ends. And then he crawls out and you're like, oh, okay, good. Flash is okay. And then that other beast, which is as big as him, comes out of the ground. He comes up from beneath him and like yeah. he's about to like devour him and he's it's got like those spiky, uh, spindly spider arms. Right. Like this, this creature is literally stabbing itself. It's to... so, there's green goop all over the place. Yeah. Flash is a mess. Oh, yeah. He got 100 yards away and all this happened to him within the span of like three minutes. <laughs> I was like, you should just go back up there with the wood beast, man. You'd be better off. No kidding. Arborea is a dangerous place, man. I was like, no wonder why they're all up in the trees. Oh, yeah. There's no way I'd be running around. Because, I mean, if that little thing's in the in the that wood stump, and that's from Aborea, I can only imagine what else is running around. Or They must have mosquitoes the size of, like, Volkswagen beetles. Oh, yeah, no thanks. But, yeah, that, that is a good scene. Yeah, well, just like you said, the, it creeps you out. It inspires the imagination. You start extrapolating, you know. You're like, what else could be out there? It, it's, it's good stuff. It's good storytelling. Because it has some great shots of literally inside the stump and you see the hand kind of coming in mm-hmm. and then they'll do the shot of the, the wood beast and it's just kind of pulsating and you just right, see that. that. Yeah, oh, weird yeah. shaking. Yeah, oh, creepy. It's, it's a scary little thing. Even watching it now, it's still tense because I always forget how many times they go back and forth before Baron decides to change the rules. It's like, your turn again. Whoa. That's the other question I always have in that scene. It's like, how many times do you go until you just call it quits? You just be like, okay, it's a tie. We're good. Or do you just keep going until one of the, I guess you just keep going until somebody Yeah, gets I mean, they're basically bit. you know playing their own version of Russian roulette with that one. So whoever gets bit, that's it. Right. God, how scary is it going to be when you're going to reach manhood and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to have to stick my hand in this and hope. Uh, yeah. I would be fearing that day for my, the entire first half of my life or whatever it is, you know, until you're 18, let's just say. Because I didn't see That's any all I'd be thinking about. Arborean women. So how, how many guys do they have? It's all guys. I'm kind of crazy. So, all right. So that was my second favorite scene. That was your okay, first. Yeah. Uh, so I'll move on to my, my third and final scene. And it is the battle against the war rocket Ajax. Hell yeah. That's my number three. My final favorite scene. And it has to be. Absolutely. War Dispatch War Rocket Ajax. So we jump ahead. We're almost starting the third act of the film. And Flash is now convinced uh, Prince Voltan and Prince Baron to team up and fight Ming. 
when they have this plan in place that they're going to attack the palace and steal the war rocket Ajax, which is like the signature warship of Mongo and use it to ram the force field that surrounds Ming's palace. And then all the Hawkman will swoop in and take over hopefully the palace. Right. So the first thing they do is they use Flash Gordon as bait and he's on a Hawkman rocket cycle and he's literally flying at the palace They see him on the radar. They send the war rocket Ajax after him. Flash does a quick 180, hides in the clouds, knowing that Ajax will come after them. Not knowing on the other side of the clouds is basically all the Hawkmen are sitting there waiting to attack. And it's just great because he's flying back and just had this great, like, just pulsing music. Right. Yeah. So the war rocket Ajax comes through. They realize it's a surprise attack and then all hell breaks loose. So it's the Hawkman swooping down on the war rocket Ajax. The music is just amazing. Brian May wrote that piece of it. Hell yeah, man. When the guitars really kick in. Yes. And you know the moment I'm talking about. It's a very specific moment. And you just, you're waiting, you're anticipating it. It's like listening, speaking of Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, when you know that when it kicks in, right? Yes. It's the same thing in this movie at that part when the Hawkmen are getting onto that Ajax warship and it just, the guitars just, and it's that iconic, unique Brian May guitar sound. Yes. It's just, yeah, it's awesome. So literally the Hawkmen are flying in waves. And while this is going on, you get to see the interior of the Ajax. And it's all the soldiers that are running through, grabbing their weapons, taking position on the Ajax. They're just trying to shoot the Hawkmen while they're coming down. And what the Hawkmen are trying to do is um, a couple of them are carrying bombs that will blow a big enough hole that will disable the uh, War Rocket Ajax and put a big enough hole in so they can get in there and basically just clean it out. Right. And... There's just so much, so much going moving. on. Yeah, yeah, so much going on. So much. You literally see fights going on on the wings of the ship. Then they're going up through the corridors. Then they finally blow the hole in. Then they get in. Then they're basically working their way from the middle of the ship to the to the control room, and they're just blasting everyone like crazy. And then they take over. And now it's Flash and Prince Voltan and two other the Hawkmen. They've now taken control of the ship, and now Flash is flying the ship at the palace. Their goal is basically just ram the lightning shield and bail right. before it happens. But because the wedding is now happening, at this point, Ming is actually marrying Dale. And so they put up the lightning shield, and they're shooting like every blaster, which is supposed to be, quote-unquote, in tribute to Ming, but at this point, they know that the Ajax has been attacked and it's it's probably been hijacked. So they're trying; right. they're actually just trying to shoot it down. So it's taking a ton of fire, but Flash is just going to keep going anyway. There's just that great line. I always love that line. So rational transaction, one life for billions. Billions. So basically, yeah. at this point, Flash knows that the only way he's going to save the planet is to sacrifice himself because there's no way if he's not behind the controls that the Ajax is actually going to make it to the palace and then everything's going to be for naught. And there's that great line that Prince Voltan has Brian Blessed, man. He's just blessed, Brian Blessed. So great when he says, uh, right before he leaves, one hell of a planet you may come from. And you just, <laughs> Flash just kind of looks around the guard back at him and says, not too bad. Yeah. Love that shit. That's actually good writing in that moment. That's a good scene between the two of them. Yes. There's some good stuff there. Yeah, just the music and just the frantic action of everything that's going on. That's what I've always just loved. But the music just really 
grabs a hold of you and you're just yeah i it with and it's almost like when that guitar hits that high note you hear like some of the lasers going off and it's just uh-huh. almost all in tune it's like <laughs> there's so much going on in the scene and i had this yeah as my favorite scene as well because it just looks so cool there's some some real uh Wrath of Khan vibes here too a little bit with going up the ship going up into the like nebula oh yeah and they're hiding behind the clouds. Mm-hmm. I love that. But this was uh, before Wrath of Khan. So, anywho. And then basically just falling into bottomless sky. Like you see Hawkman get shot in their wings and they just. Uh, that's what I was going to say. There are so many great shots within this scene. And when you see one of the winged Hawkman get winged, they actually want to say that. It's uh, Brio or Biro says that at one point. He's like, oh, no, I just got winged. And I was like, yeah. is, that, is that a little tongue in cheek? Is that a little pun there? You know, like, because he's got wings. But you see, like, one of the Hawkmen get shot in the wing and his wings on fire and he's spiraling through the clouds, like falling downward. And you're like, holy shit, boss. Yeah, there's no bottom, so you don't know where he's going. Yeah, and then you see one of the henchmen, one of the soldiers get shot, mm-hmm. the bad guys, and he falls off the wing and falls downward. And you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, and Prince Volta is literally just knocking him off. He's just playing oh. around with them and just pushes them off like, see you later. It's full on assault war going at one another. So, and it's intercut. It's just great because this whole assault on a war rocket Ajax, which is a great name for a war rocket. Oh yeah. Is happening. And it's intercut between that. And like you said, the wedding between Dale and she's got to marry the evil Ming, the merciless. And the pacing is great. And you have such a major time constraint here because not only is Flash trying to get to the city to rescue Dale, but you watch the clock countdown going the entire time because planet Earth is about to be destroyed in like three minutes. I mean, the entire sequence is is freaking amazing. And the models, uh, the effects, the costuming, all the way to that shot of Ajax coming. The lightning field is cool. And you see all the bullet, the, the laser blasts, and it's on fire and it's smoking and you see the ship like through the uh, the throne room, basically. You're looking through the glass kind of, you see the lightning field, but then you see the Ajax approaching, especially near the end when, they're, when Ming has his holy shit moment because Flash is getting really close in the ship. And you just see that ship approaching with the smoke trailing behind it. It's just like, oh man, that looks so cool. And then he freaking crashes through and impales Ming on the, the front spike of Ajax, of the ship. That's freaking great. And it's cut really well, because that's hard to do, like to pull off without CGI. But they did it. They, there's some great practical effects in there. So great, great scene. It's intense with that, that time constraint, the clock clicking down. Yeah, everything. And then, yeah, especially at the last moment when you have Dale Arden, like get out of the way and go to something like, go Flash. Yes, <laughs> She's running at like two times speed. All right. I, I have a good guess what your next favorite scene is going to be. Absolutely. Go for it. What is it? Guess. I want to say it's the combat disc fight. 100%. Yes. Absolutely. It is the, what I call, what I'm now calling the, because you, you were right, you said the disc. It's not the deadly disc from Tron. This is a platform 
a disk platform. I've called the spike disk platform at Prince Voltan's floating city. This is the duel between Prince Baron and Flash Gordon that happens. It's a trial by combat because what's happened is now we've gotten most of the team back together, actually uh, the whole team back together on Prince Voltan's floating city. But Voltan isn't uh, all like cheery about this. He wants to actually turn in Baron and Flash Gordon and Zarkov and Dale Arden and give them all over to Bang and be like, hey, look who I found and look who I'm, I'm giving you these gifts. And now you can leave us alone until I actually increase my army of Hawkmen and then I'll attack you. That's basically what he's saying. But in the meantime, Baron and Flash and everybody else are like, what the F, man? Why are you doing this to us? Why would you turn us into Ming? And he's like, well, I've got my own interests. So Baron says, well, hold on, Voltan. You know what? You can't turn us in. You can't take us hostage and turn us in until we there is a right that I can uh, invoke here. And it's a trial by combat. And Voltan looks to his right hand man. He's like, is that true? <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like, yeah, actually it is. So Voltan has Prince Baron, Flash Gordon, crap, grab a couple of bullwhips. Oh, yeah, that's fun. And hop onto this uh, disc platform, which once again is hovering above never-ending space. We have the beautiful pink swirling clouds and such, but like uh, Bill and I were alluding to earlier in the Ajax uh, warship battle scene, this galaxy just kind of falls out and there's nothingness. And this disc that's in this floating city is floating above nothingness. It's like a whirlpool. Nice. Yeah, so Baron and Flash are going to duel uh, with their whips on this disc. So there's a little wrestling, they're whipping at each other, and clearly Baron has the upper hand. He knows how to handle a whip much better than Flash, but Flash has got a little more physical dexterity, I suppose. Well, who's got the remote control to this disc? Well, that would be Prince Voltan. He starts pressing buttons, and the disc starts rotating, and it's tilting up and back. It's like a seesaw. And so they're going back and forth and slipping and falling. And then, uh, well, Voltan presses another button and guess what happens? Spikes. I love the spikes. Up. The spikes are incredible. And just the sound effect with spikes. Oh man. Awesome. They shoot like a- upward and then they retract back into these little holes in the, in the disc and they're timed differently. So the warriors on the disc don't know when the spikes are going to and that, again, as a kid, you're just going, oh, my God, if I, you step on one of those, you fall on one of those. And they keep falling over. And the fight just goes on and on. And they're whipping each other and punching each other. They've got slashes all over each other. And it's super intense. Voltan's laughing. Dale Arden's screaming. And everybody's, it's, you know, watching. And, you know, several times it goes back and forth. Who's going to win? And eventually, you think Baron's got the best of Flash. Flash is about to go over the edge into endless space fall off the disc, right? Well, Voltan <laughs> uses a little remote and flips the disc the other, tilts the opposite way. Baron goes flying down and almost falls off the edge on the opposite end of the disc. And then, of course, Flash Gordon uh, slides down, holds on to one of the spikes and reaches down. Actually, he's got his whip wrapped around one of yeah, the spikes. Yeah, he uses the whip. And then it reaches down with his other hand, helps Baron up, rescues Baron, saving his life. And they both get back onto the disc. Of course, Voltan's like, what are you doing? Just let him go. (laughs) Flash saves Baron's life. 
and says, hey, this is it. This is our chance. Let's team up. Let's fight Ming together. And that's the great moment that Bill talked about at the top of this pod, where it's like Baron is like, oh, my gosh, this Flash, he's a good dude. He's convinced me. I'm going to I'm going to turn to the good side here and uh, team up with Flash because he is a man of virtue and he is fighting on the side of right. And we will now fight together. And they shake hands. And it's a great moment. And that stuck with me as a kid. I was like, wow, this guy made a turn. He's doing the right thing. Oh, that's cool. They're like brothers now. Uh, it's a cool moment in the movie. Unfortunately, of course, Voltan and the Hawkman just kind of abandoned them. <laughs> like, okay, we're out of here. Good luck. But that's an intense scene. It's a lot of fun. It's a great, it's one of those great dual mano y mano fight scenes. Who's going to win? They're pretty evenly matched. And Timothy Dalton, Sam Jones going head to head. I think I covered most of it. Please add more, Bill Van. Yeah, what's great about that, because you have this moment where you think, all right, everyone's going to team up and fight Ming, and then Kalitas shows up. Right, yeah. And spoils the fun. That's actually, speaking of which, please, yeah, that's really the capper of this whole scene. And Kalitas comes down and throwing down martial law. Baron, you're now a traitor. You're going to be executed. Flash, we're going to execute you. Voltan, you're in trouble for harboring these fugitives. And Baron's like, I, I've heard enough of this. And basically Dex Clytus throws him to Flash and then Flash tackles him and throws him on the combat disc, which has all the spikes up and kills Clytus. So now the number two has been taken out, which you would think, okay, look, we can do this. Right. But at that point, Prince Voltan's like, uh, yeah, we're out of here. And <laughs> leaves poor Dale, Zarkov, Baron and Flash there alone on the Hawkman palace. And at that point, Mink shows up to pick them all up. But yeah, when they, when they throw Kalitus, when Flash throws Kalitus onto the combat disc, onto the spikes, just great. The bulging eyes. And then his body also kind of like deflates on the spikes. It's really creepy. Yeah. I love all that stuff. It's violent, but it's fun, campy, good action. That's uh that's all the scenes for me, man. All right. That's all the scenes for me too. So let's uh, move on to music. Yeah. Which we've kind of touched on a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, so the music was done by uh, Queen and Howard Blake. Uh, director Mike Hodges initially considered Pink Floyd to compose right. the music for the film. Oof, that would have been different, huh? Oh, I know. I was thinking that too. I was like, oh my God, how much different? And I'm a Pink Floyd them? fan. I yeah, love me too. Pink Floyd. I adore them. I think they're one of the most unique bands of, in history, but that would have been a different movie. Yeah, very unique take on it. And Mike Hodges would actually play supposedly Pink Floyd during filming just to get kind of people in the mood of what he was looking for for the film. But producer Dino De Laurentiis had other ideas and uh, he wanted Queen. So director Mike Hodges, you know, after he showed Queen uh, some of the rushes, each member of the band would pick a scene to work on independently. So they didn't work on this right. actually together. Guitarist Brian May had worked on Flash's theme and the Ajax battle theme tracks. Uh, bassist John Deacon worked on the execution of Flash track. Uh, drummer Roger Taylor worked on the space capsule, which is the love theme when the Zarkov ship initially takes off and it gets sucked into the Absolutely. The, yeah, black hole. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, he did the Swamp Tracks and Freddie Mercury worked on the uh, Ring, the Dale and uh, the Football Fight Tracks. So they would uh, then each meet with Mike to lay their demo tracks within the movie before all of them got together to finish it. 
Mike Hodges, the director, said the sessions normally would start around two in the afternoon and continue to eight or nine the next morning. And this went on for three weeks straight. So after Queen had finished all of the music that they were going to do for the movie, they still had to come up with another 45 minutes. And Brian May suggested a friend that could come in who could be a composer because at that point, Hodges wanted like orchestral music to, to finish the rest of the of the film. And Brian May's like, oh, I know someone that could do it for you. And Hodge's like, great. And we can work with him. So, of course, they scheduled the day where they're going to bring in the orchestra and they're going to play all this music for the rest of the film. Well, the guy they hired only had four minutes of music done at that point. So they have to cancel everything, bite the bullet on the, the money they spent because they, you know, they hired all the musicians. They hired the studio recorded in, but they didn't have any music to play. So at that point, that's where they uh, found Howard Blake to come in and save the day. Howard said he was only given 10 days to complete the rest of the music, which he said would normally take him about four weeks to do. And he says, so he pretty much spent the last four days not sleeping to make sure he got it done. But the good thing was that um, Brian May would come and kind of help him with some of the themes that they're like, oh, yeah, when we saw the scene, these are some of the things we were kind of thinking of, but we didn't, you know, we didn't do it. So they were. So Queen was a big help with with Howard Blake to get this finished. So some of Queen's additional ideas did make it into the film. The soundtrack itself was the Ninth Studio album. And of course, it's the first soundtrack that Queen has done. The other one being um, Highlander. Right. The soundtrack was released on January 27th, 1981, the United States. The soundtrack only features lyrics on two tracks, which is Flash's theme, which is the beginning. And then the hero, uh, which is sung over the end credits. Flash's theme was the only single to be released from the album and under the title Flash. The album reached number 23 in the U.S., And unlike most soundtrack albums that we usually listen to, audio from the film is prominently used in the music. And this was actually from the suggestion of the Queen. They wanted that in there, that they wanted the snippets of the the movie in with the soundtrack. They didn't just want the the music itself. So that was kind of unusual to to usually hear that. Uh, Usually, maybe you'll hear something that will set up the track, but not actually during the track itself. So I, I thought that was always kind of cool. I love this soundtrack to death. I've listened to it to death. I memorized it. I know it by heart. It's the quotes, the one track transitioning to another. It's amazing. So what else do I need to say? Uh, Here's a memory of mine. XM Radio used to have a wonderful movie soundtrack station and they just play movie music. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. One of my favorite stations of all time. I don't know if it, they still have it. I don't think they do. And that was one of the reasons I stopped listening to that for a while. At some point, I'm driving back to my place in Pasadena when I lived in Pasadena. And I hear one of the romantic orchestral themes from Flash Gordon. I'm going, this isn't the Queen soundtrack, but this is the Queen soundtrack. But this is the soundtrack to Flash Gordon. I'm like, what the heck? And it was amazing. And it was one of the orchestral pieces that Howard Blake had done. And they were playing it on XM. I'm like, this is, a, what is this? I want this. I want this music. So for you uh, avid soundtrack fans out there, you can find Howard Blake's contribution, uh, his additional orchestral score, which is based on Queen's score, on a compilation disc with his score for Amity, Amityville 3D. So it's two movies, Flash Gordon <laughs> and combo. Amityville 3D. It's on the same disc and there's a bunch of tracks. So I have managed, you can find some of them on 
Google Music, YouTube, you can find some of the tracks. They're awesome, Bill. It's great. And I need to, I, I think you can buy it on eBay. I need to find it. There's like a use on eBay. It's hard to find us, but the Howard Blake stuff is really cool. I know. I kind of feel bad for him because I mean, he did literally half the music, but Queen gets all the credit. I mean, granted, the Queen stuff is great. I'm not going to. Oh, yeah. But I wish, yeah, Blake got his credit too for what he did. It's great stuff. And he incorporates the cool stuff that Queen had done. I mean, it's the thematic stuff, but the dun, 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 mm. dun comes in at one point. You're like, oh my God, this is awesome. Yeah. But it's like an orchestral version and it totally works. And speaking of, like you said, there was so much done under the gun. Queen, like you said, this, like, this was their ninth studio album. Well, part of the reason they were so under the gun to get this done was they were still in the middle of working on their eighth studio album, The Game. Yeah, it was coming out that summer. Yeah. Prepping for that U.S. tour. Yeah. So they're coming out with the game, prepping for the tour and trying to do Flash Gordon. And then, like you said, Howard Blake barely had any time to get it done. So despite all of that, one of the best soundtracks we have of all time. Yeah. If you ask anybody about the movie, you know, they're going to bring up the music. Yeah. You cannot not bring up the music. It's one of the few times where you see that cross genre really work rock and roll and sci-fi and it totally totally works first times because usually it's usually like it's groundbreaking in my opinion no question yeah i wish they had done more stuff queen i wish for soundtrack yeah yeah or even other rock stars to do just regular soundtracks well see now i that was my question like it's i was going to talk about that but we can talk about now we're talking about music but that's the thing now is that we're getting that finally and they're amazing and i'm just gonna there's probably a lot more that you could probably name but right off the top probably the most well-known at this point in contemporary film is trent reznor and atticus ross oh yeah anything they put out it's in my collection hell yeah obviously social network is amazing and then you can name the rest you know just look at imdb yeah usually when i write i usually write to their music also now who's becoming more and more prominent, but has been around doing scores for some time is Johnny Greenwood, who actually was nominated for uh, The Power of the Dog. And he is an amazing musician from uh, a little known band called Radiohead. Uh, he was the lead guitarist and keyboardist. Mm-hmm. And now he's doing movie scores and they're brilliant. And he's going to get nominated for more and more stuff, yeah. I'm sure. And uh, now I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to him. But you're getting a lot more rock and roll musicians that make that transition. But you don't even think about that because then you could go back to Danny Elfman, too, if you really want to, right? Yes. Uh, So these brilliant musicians that started in one venue or one uh, genre or style of music can easily make that transition because they can read and write music and they can orchestrate uh, it's a real talent. Yeah. One of my favorites is Peter Gabriel's for Last Intention of Christ. Yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't listened to that in so long. It's such a great. Yeah. I so still haven't awesome. seen the movie. <laughs> right. I love the soundtrack. Someday I'm going to watch that movie. It's a good call, though, man. I used to listen to that all the time in college. Yeah. Good stuff, man. So anything else on music? No, I think we can keep it moving. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. 
You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. All right, so let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, it just falls under the complaint department. All right, I'm sure we got a, a little bit for Swiss cheese complaint department. Got a so a few things. Yeah. This is my first one. How does Flash Gordon not receive a nomination for best costume design? Danilo Dentona, who did all the costumes for this movie. Amazing oh, yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, the movie itself. I thought you were talking about the character, but yeah. no, no, I'm just talking about the co- How does this not get nominated? I actually looked at the nominees for that year to see what was nominated. And the movies were Tess, The Elephant Man, My Brilliant Career, Somewhere in Time, and When Time Ran Out. Hmm. And two of them are like period pieces. So, of course, sure. you know, Hollywood is a period piece. We got That's an automatic nomination. Right. Yes, it should be. It's always well-deserved. But you're telling me the costume work in Flash Gordon does not get nominated? It I mean, really stood out to me on this rewatch today, Bill. The costumes 600 awesome. different costumes. 600 different costumes made for this film. They had a staff of 35 people around the clock. Danelle had won an Oscar before for his costume work. So it wasn't like, you know, this is someone from out of left field. That's great. I'm glad you're giving him a shout out here because he deserves a lot of credit. And he did some of the production design also. There, Well, I'm not surprised. It all kind of goes together, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like one big ensemble. So between all of the soldiers' costumes, uh, I, you know I love Clytus, mm-hmm. General Kala. Uh, we have obviously, you know, in the, the ballroom, throne room, the wedding, uh, we have the Hawkmen we have Prince Baron and his men. You have, uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, Del Arden's costumes, Princess Aurora's costumes. Come yeah. on. They're, it's, they're, uh, it's elaborate. Yeah. And detailed and extravagant. Some of them are exquisite. They look fantastic. Yeah, that's a complaint. Just because it's a sci-fi doesn't mean it shouldn't get nominated. Sure, because of the campy nature of the film, too, that it's been said that it's all it's just over the top, which is just an oversimplification of it. Yes. You're, you're not giving it not nearly enough credit. Uh, the costumes, just look at them. Just look at them. Watch it. Like I keep saying, just watch this movie again now in HD. It's just so cool. Good call, man. Serious complaint. This is a common complaint I have in a lot of sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm is immediately when our main characters step outside of an, a spaceship, how do they breathe? And that's always... I oh, I know. They crack up. I'm like... They always oh. just assume it's breathable air. I guess you can just uh, step onto Mongo, or you can fly a rocket cycle, or uh, travel anywhere, and you're just, okay, you're good to breathe. We're all good. And luckily, everybody speaks English, too. It's always the two. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody understands. Whatever. 
no uh, translators needed. But uh, that that always cracks me up. I love in the beginning of this movie, I don't know, jumped out of this time. I'm like, Flash Gordon, superstar quarterback, just kicking it in the sweet station wagon. <laughs> I know. I'm like, <laughs> football players didn't make as much back then as they do now. I figured he was on vacation. This is the one I was like, okay, Dark Harbor is where they're supposed to be at. I'm like, this must have been a rental, probably all that they had. Small town in the middle of nowhere, you know, kind of like out in the mountains. But yeah, one of those side panel jobs. Yeah, I thought the same. I'm like, what is he driving? It's brilliant. Because I was like, this is <laughs> not too ritzy for Star Quarterback. And by the way, I for, now I I hate myself for forgetting this, but it's clear, wherever they shot that, it's somewhere remote. It's pretty re- wherever that was actually shot. It's oh, not, yeah. It's not, yeah, it's supposed it, to be Canada, it's like, United States, but I it's think not. it's like in Europe or something. I don't know. It was somewhere foreign. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious when you see, when you see the plane uh, fly over like the beautiful like mountain landscape and the lakes and everything. Like, was it Wales? Could it's something I think could be something like that. Cause all the movie was shot overseas. That's kind of funny. And speaking of this same sequence, I don't, I, I think I have a lot of things just regarding this opening sequence. Yeah, that, I got a little bit. Yeah. I, I wrote, uh, Hey, Hey, Flash, I don't think the pilots need your advice, buddy. Uh, when he's like, Hey, you guys might want to fly a little higher. It might be smoother. It's like, Hey, Flash, you're a court. What? Go sit down. Shut your mouth. Yeah, Dale calls them out on that one, which is good. Yeah, which is great. Stop bothering. Yeah, I took three lessons. I know everything. Typical stuff that people do. It's just. I saw a master class on flying, so now I know everything. Just one lesson. (laughs) That's my favorite Bill Bant quote of all time. I'm going to go on a sidebar right now here, ladies and gentlemen. One of my favorite Bill Bant moments of all time, when he visited me at my apartment in Pasadena, we walked out into the main lobby on the ground floor and my neighbors across the hall, somebody kept, he was a nice Korean family and the Korean boy was practicing what is some kind of interest instrument. Something, a wind, a wind instrument. Yeah. And Bill just out of just instinctively goes, and not one lesson. <laughs> uh, Ferris Bueller. Uh, great stuff. Uh, do you have another complaint? All right. So the, the opening scene in the plane. So with everything going on during the destruction of the Earth, why does Ming decide to fly down and pull out two pilots from their plane? Oh, see that? What the hell was that? That made no sense to me. I have a very, it, this ties right into that. That's, you're exactly right. I wrote, so this seems a bit personal. Did Ming pinpoint Flash's plane? He's attacking an entire planet, but goes after that plane specifically. And for some reason, you haven't seen the movie. It's not like if this is a, it's like a small jet. It only yeah. sits about eight people. Yeah. Go, go after the airlines. Why are you even bothering with a one plane? Like you just, but you see specifically, this is the opening of the movie. You see Ming the Merciless's face appear in the red clouds and he goes and he sucks the pilots out of this plane. You're like, man. Yeah. The comic strip and the Buster Crab handled it a lot better. Because the plane gets hit by yeah. the meteor and everybody has to bow out. Like literally everyone jumps right. out of the plane. Parachutes. And and it makes more sense a little bit in the serial because Flash Gordon is actually going to see his father. They have a destination. They're flying to go see his father and then crash. Scientist. It's still a coincidence, though, that they crash and run into Zarkov, I guess. Right. Regardless. But there's still a little bit more information. Anyway. 
again, Ming just going right after Flash Gordon's plane, his little charter plane. Hey, man, speaking of Dr. Hans, Dr. Hans Sarkov. Yes. How the hell does he know of an attack from outer space? That like, what evidence does he have or did he have? Because he's basically on the outs with NASA and everybody else. No, he's he was a former NASA scientist. Okay, right. Because it shows in the in his mind wipe video that he used to work for NASA, and he and he was trying to explain to him back then that this was going to happen. Everyone thought he was Looney Bird, but somehow he had put together that there was an imminent attack from right. That's never explained though. Right, like how the hell would you know that? an alien force is about to attack the earth. I just think that's, it's, yeah, it's kind of bad shit. But yeah. That's, that's one of those suspension of disbelief things. Yeah, where you just I don't think you can't there. explain. Yeah. You can't explain. You're just it. like, Oh, he's a crazy scientist who has a crazy theory. And this is his theory. It just happened to come true, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of funny. It's like how in that there's no, they don't even give that any like fake science or fake science jargon. Cause he kind of explains He's like, oh, is the uh, moon's alignment out of whack or whatever it was? Uh, what does it say? The angular or something about the moon? Yeah. It's like, oh, because that means the the alien force is using an energy beam to shift the moon and push it towards Earth or whatever. Like, okay, that's something at least. Uh, it's crazy shit, but it's still something. Right. And that's the thing, too, because even if you think about the end of the movie where the moon is about to hit the Earth under three minutes, Earth's already gone by then. Oh, <laughs> there's no way we could survive the move when that far out of orbit. And it is funny because when we do see Ming and Flash have their little fireside chat, they're just their little uh, one-on-one chat. Mm-hmm. And Ming is trying to make Flash an offer. He's like, hey, you, I'm going to give you your own moon. I'm going to give you your own planet. You get to rule Earth. And Flash is like, well, you know, what happens to the people of Earth? He's like, well, there probably won't be much left of the people of Earth with all the earthquakes and everything. And I was like, Oh, yeah, we saw that in the beginning. There was a lot of shit already happening. Like yes. half the planet's already destroyed. They're not going to have much to return to at this point. It's like, how much damage has already been done to Earth at this point? Mm-hmm. But you're right. With like under three minutes left, if the moon was that close to Earth, there'd be tsunamis would have wiped out the whole planet. The whole Earth's gravity would have shifted and everything would have been wiped out. But this is a, a silly complaint since you mentioned earthquakes. Aren't they really Mongo quakes? because they wouldn't know what earthquakes are <laughs> right that they i again once again it's just like how does Clytus know what a three-point stance is how do how do they have buttons that are specifically labeled earthquake tornado you know hurricane hot hail it would be funny if it said mongo quake it's amazing that's great ming quake a ming nato mong nato all right i'm gonna, I'm gonna rip on my ajax battle scene yeah so who is Biro and why does Biro and Flash all of a sudden seem to be best friends? Yeah. Was there a deleted scene somewhere? Was yeah, Biro like, like a of, mentor to Flash at some point? I mean, we've a had wise old man. We've had Hawkman dropping out of the sky for the last five minutes, but Biro takes a little shot to the wing and Flash Gordon freaks out. Biro's hit and swoops down to save him. For the longest time, I thought his name was Hero. Uh, then I, I thought, thought it, it was Hero. Then I thought it was Nero. And then finally, for this podcast, I realized I've been wrong all these years, and it's Biro with the B, B-I-R-O. Right. We're always making discoveries with this movie. All right. He's in other scenes of the movie, but... Here's what I would have liked, uh, which I was hoping would come back is, and I mistakenly or misremembered this, actually, is when 
on Arborea, Flash is being lowered into the swamp in the cage with all the other, the lizard men, which by the way, also gave me nightmares as a kid. I forgot about the oh, lizard yeah, there's men. A, yeah, those are weird. And their eyeballs are in their mouths. Yeah, their faces That's are in their creepy mouths. creepy as oh, hell. Is when Flash is, because they're basically, they have to hold on to the top portion of the cage to keep themselves from drowning in the swamp. And he's helping one of the Hawkmen happen to be trapped in that cage. Right. If it was that Hawkman, that would make I so much more sense. I thought that Hawkman was going to come back at some point in the story to mm-hmm. be like, hey, F- Flash did me a, a solid back at Arborea. Yeah. We should be helping him. But he doesn't. I thought that maybe that was Bira, but it's not. He could still be in that cage for all we know. Yeah. He didn't get rescued like or fake rescued. But since we're on Arborea, I'll, I'll go with my next complaint. All right. <laughs> So Prince Baron, you know, devises this plan that they're going to have Flash go into the temple and face the wood beast. And that's how they're going to kill him. Right. And so Prince Baron's advisor, they pretend he's a traitor and they throw him into the cage with Flash. Right. Two seconds later, like the rest of the Aborians haven't even left. And he's like, I got the key. We oh, can get out. Really? Yeah. Wait till everybody leaves. Yeah. Hey, Captain Obvious. Build, what? build some trust. Don't need to announce it to all of Arboria. I would think, wait, that seems a little too convenient. You yeah. literally see him holding the key while he's, they're throwing him in. I got the key. Oh, I'm yeah. Out right away. Flash would have, should have just been like, oh, you're a plant. You've been planted here. You're- uh, I'm going to drown you. Then I'll take your key. <laughs> That's a good call. He's really obvious about it. Yeah. yeah that was a little too obvious for me. I'm going all the way back to the beginning again with Zarkov. Go ahead. Go ahead. Freaking Zarkov in his lab. I, I just love that stuff. Zarkov and Munson. Zarkov has abandonment issues, man. Stop pointing a gun at people just to get them to align with you. It's not a good way to secure healthy working relationships. uh, Because, And here's the thing. Here's the main complaint. He's trying to get Munson to join him on this rocket ship because he needs two people to operate the ship. Well, you're pulling a gun on the guy. If you shoot him, doesn't that defeat the purpose? So don't point a gun at him. Why'd you build the ship that way? And that's not going to make you look less crazy, bro. If you're worried about your, you know, everybody, nobody believing you, don't pull a gun on people. Topol. Did you know that Topol's, he's great, by the way. Yo, Gotta yes. give a shot. We love Topol, man. For your eyes only. Chewing his pistachios, man. Yes. Topol. Now I want to sing the theme from. Uh, you want to do Fiddler on the Roof now, too? His first name is, I guess, Chame. Where did I see that? Oh, yeah, I did see that, too. Or shame, shame. Because of the how you say his first name. Yeah, I don't know how you pronounce it. I was like, like, I never saw his actual first name before. Yeah, (laughs) keep harping on this opening fucking scene. Go for it with Flash. uh, When the pilots get sucked out of the plane, Flash hops into the pilot seat, and then so does Dale. And she's like, "Oh, and here's the the trope you hear always. Oh, did you get to the part where you learned how to land? And of course, of course, no, I didn't learn how to land. And at some point." He says, look for the landing lights. Yeah. What? <laughs> I know. You don't that know where us... you are, first yeah. of all. What, you're not you... about to like, oh, did you find an airport flash through all the shit storm that's going on? The gauges are out. You have no instruments. You have, what are, what are you talking about? Look for the landing lights, idiot. You just look for a flat ground. How about yeah, that? I know. That's what you just say. Just try to figure I out just, where we are. I know. I, I thought the same thing. This time. I'm like, what? Yeah, that made no sense either. <laughs> it's like, just because your plane's in distress doesn't mean all of a sudden a, a landing strip appears. Yeah, going back to Arborea. Okay. I just had a problem with Princess Aura here. She's being emotionally manipulative, this chick. 
she's sexy as all hell. I mean, but capital S. Yeah. Oof. But uh, I mean, look, we know that she's taking Flash to Baron because Flash is kind of needs help, right? But when they get to Arboria, Princess Aura doesn't say to Baron, Oh, I brought Flash here to help you. You can help him. Why don't you guys team up? She literally just tells him to keep him there. Like, can you hold on to my new boy toy? Well, because yes. he's going to go to Scythera, my pleasure planet, with me next week. How do you feel about that, boyfriend? Well, he does call her a bitch, I guess, doesn't he? Yes, he does. You don't know why she's bringing him there, of all places. Prince Baron, he's he's all twisted around that because oh yeah, he's still he's like, yeah, no, I'll hold on to your new boy toy. Um, whatever. I hear so hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's you know, keep going. Yeah, it's your turn. All right, so go, go back. Go, go. All right, so back to the battle, Ajax. All right, so their whole plan is to stick a bomb on Ajax and detonate it to basically disable the Ajax and, and blow a hole in there so they can get in. Right. All right. So I think the bomb was magnetic. Your Hawkben, who can freely fly around, just dropped the bomb on the ship. Oh, yeah. From the sky. Why do you got to fly on there and place it? You only had one bomb? <laughs> you could drop like 50 on that thing. And whenever one hits closest, so like, all right. That would have been cool. Yeah, if they just flew over and like threw the charges at the ship and it just stuck to the side. I mean, yeah, it's not as cool a fight. Right. It's cool to see them landing on the ship. And oh, yeah, that's thing. all cool. But do you really need to go land on the ship and put the bomb? Is it like the Death Star? It's like it has to. the bomb has to be on this one exact spot in order for it to blow up and us to get in. Right. Just drop it. Just drop it on top. You just fly over. Sure. It sticks. Yeah. I mean, it'd be easy enough. It's just like, you know, how, you know, birds fly above us and they, you know, they target our heads with their bird shit. Or my that's car. Just, yeah. That's what the Hawkman should have done. Yes. That's a good point. Speaking of my, my favorite scenes, the, uh, speaking of shitting on things, I'll shit on the combat disc scene just a little bit at the very, very end when Voltan tilts the combat disc and Baron almost goes flying off and, Flash saves him by you know, wrapping the whip around one of the spikes and then reaching down. To hold. What if Voltan just lowered the spikes at that point? Oh, I thought about that, too. <laughs> he gets rid of both of them. Yeah, gotta, yep, we got to get rid of both of them. It's over. Two and one blow. That's all. All right. Uh, question for you, Jason. Yep. It's Rakana on that scene. Have you ever ridden a rocket cycle before? I've been on a, a treadmill and pretended like I was on a flying rocket cycle <laughs> no I, i've never been on a rocket cycle before i was just impressed how quickly flash gordon figured out how to use a rocket cycle okay <laughs> <Completely>. <laughs> with everything blowing up around you in a panic everything's shaking he just knew how to jump on that baby and get going. fires it up fires it up gets that little backrest going right it's like do you Lips need that, that backrest up? up in order for it to start and then uh he does something with his feet like there's a pedal or something like he clicks out and it's like oh yeah he's just like nope uh vertical pedal on the right that's the gas pedal i'm gonna press that click this button boom we're out there's probably not a lot of buttons on it but i would think maybe the first thing is you have to bring that bar up he just jumps on that and takes off like he's been riding that thing for years oh well you know after earlier in the film when princess aura showed him how to fly the her little sex ship you know she's like this one changes the altitude this one changes direction oh yeah and uh then he just knew how to fly everything i guess 
But yeah, that's hilarious because yeah, he just hops on that treadmill rocket cycle. He's like, yeah, let's freaking let's do the whole let's do it with the, yep. these two tiny these two tiny tiny little rockets on the back of it. It's gonna shoot you up <laughs> into space. Yep. Flying blind on a rocket cycle. Impetuous boy. Great stuff. Here's my complaint as kind of at the end is just the fact that we don't get a duel between Flash and Ming. There's no big final fight, which is kind of a bummer. But I honestly really didn't think about that until I kind of read something about it in the research and then then thought about it. And I'm like, that is kind of a bummer. But it's such a cool finale. And he does the way he gets Meng by impaling him on the spike of Ajax shit Mm -hmm. is so cool that it's almost doesn't matter. Right. But that's kind of like you're always looking forward to the big fight, right? Yes. We don't really get that. That's all. That's all I really have for complaints. And what else do you got, man? All right. So this is my last one. Okay. So shouldn't Prince Voltan be a little pissed that the Hawkmen are doing all the heavy lifting on this attack on Mongo? I mean, where are the people of Ardentia? Where's the rest of the, you know, Aborians? Shouldn't they, you know, chip in a little bit? I mean, the Hawkmen are taking all the, the casualties for this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where where are the Phrygians? Yeah. The Aquarians or whatever. Or even the Lion people. That's from the serial. But, but I was like, man, it's basically the Hawkmen. Basically the Hawkmen were going to do this anyway. And they got like two extra people, Prince Baron and Flash. That's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they could have recruited some more peeps where's the where's the cavalry man yeah get all the get the lizard people out of the, the swamp box they didn't seem like much of fighters though to be honest <laughs> i don't i don't know if i'd want them fighting with me they would seem they seemed a little skittish all, at all times yeah 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 i would think you know the people of Ardentia, they they would be in be the people of Ardentia. all right so moving on it's hey it's that actor <laughs> In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who wants to go first on this one? Uh, you do it, man. Okay. So my, hey, it's that actor is Richard O'Brien, who plays Fico, who was, who was the one who was playing the Arborian flute, and he was Prince Baron's advisor, the one who, the traitor with the key. Right. As soon as you hear his voice, he wrote, and starred in the biggest cult classic of all time, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, he wow. is Riff Raff in that. Huh. But he's like um, Dr. Frankenfurter's little side. He's the bald one with the, like the stringy hair. I'm, You know, to be honest, I'm not a big Rocky Horror guy. Oh, I love Rocky Horror. I get it. I totally get it. It's just never been in my wheelhouse. Yeah, uh, the first time I saw it was at UM. Oh, sure. Yeah. When they did it and they had the actors acted out on stage at the same time they were showing the movie. And I was just, I was hooked at that point. And he also wrote and starred, and I didn't know this until like two years ago, that there was actually a sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's called Shock Treatment, and oh. he played Dr. Cosmo McKinley in that movie. Huh. Yeah, it came out in like 82, 81 or 82, but the only characters that are the same are Janet and Brad. Gotcha. Different actors, though, but I've never seen it. It doesn't look that great. <laughs> But I, I was surprised. I had never heard of this movie until like last year. But yeah, Richard O'Brien. Good call, man. That's great. Yeah, he has a good little part. Yep. That's that's really cool. I would have never known that. Uh, so. Yeah, who do you have? 
my hey is that actor i'm going with philip stone who plays zogi the high priest who is seeing over the wedding between dale arden and ming the merciless at the end of this film philip stone in the same year plays the role of charles grady in the shining which you haven't seen i was gonna say i'm like i don't i don't recognize (laughs) right so fans of the shining will recognize him he is a uh bald gentleman, very creepy character, reoccurring character in the film, The Shining. He was the once caretaker of the Overlook Hotel who had murdered his family and committed suicide. And Jack is uh, seeing him. There's a great scene between the two of them. I believe it's in a restaurant. It's just, he's creepy as all hell. Great actor, uh, Philip Stone. He'd also previously been in Barry Lyndon, another Stanley Kubrick film. uh, Okay. But then... He would go on to play Captain Blumbert in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 1984. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you think of when they get to the actual like temple. Right. And they're having the the dinner with monkey brains. Yes. uh, He's like the British captain. Oh, okay. Yes. Right. At the table with the regalia, the Mm -hmm. uniform. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Good call. I did not recognize him. So yeah, that's my hey, it's that actor, man. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, and there's a ton and that we've mentioned in a couple of our other previous podcasts uh, that were in this movie. So, but there's still a lot to to choose from. I just got to give one quick shout out, man, because Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie of all time in the yes. universe of humankind. Is that John Hollis? I guess is an actor. He is well, he's an actor, obviously, who plays one of the uh, what are they called? Uh, image the the creepy. Guys in General Kala's oh right with combat the, room with the with visual the, what do they call yes. image something imagers or something right the image yeah we'll the, say imagers they're like Funky goggles glasses. yeah those tech glasses that they're wearing and you pull them off their face and it pulls like the wires out of the heads they're creepy yeah who designed that you kill one and they all die that was that know. was very smart not a good yeah not a not a good design no it's a major flaw there but funny enough who do they look like from uh, what character do they look like from The Empire Strikes Back? Lobot. You got it. So John Hollis is one of those guys. And then it goes on to play Lobot. In the Empire yes. Strikes Back. It's just kind yeah. of cool. <laughs> I can see him going into audition. Yeah. So you're pretty good with wearing the headgear, right? Yeah. Okay. What great. we're going to do is a reverse version yes. of that. It's gonna we'll show your eyes this time. And it's going to go around the back of your head. Yeah. Do you still have that from Flash? And for the audition, we just need you to point. And that's it. There you go. All right. So moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have for Flash Gordon? Yeah, go start us off, man. All right. So the big one is, and we kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning. So if you do watch the documentary Life After Flash, it will definitely touch on this a little bit more. So Sam Jones, who played Flash Gordon, never actually finished filming the movie. He walked off the movie due to a salary dispute. Um, when production had wrapped for Christmas break, Sam left and never returned, thinking he right. was going to then get his money. But producer Dino De Laurentiis was so upset, he hired stand-ins to finish the movie, and then 60% of Sam's audio was ADR'd by another actor. Yeah, whom that actor's name wasn't known for years. Right, and I, I read it, and then I forgot to write it down, and then I couldn't find where I read it again. You don't happen to have it, do you? I do. Peter Marinker. Okay. Peter Marinker. 
yeah, for years, the identity of the voice actor who provided the voice was unknown. I guess he was an impersonator too. So, uh, and this was unknown to even Sam Jones himself. In October, 2017, a user on a science fiction and fantasy stack exchange forum suggested that the voice actor was likely Peter Marinker, Marinker uh, based on a compilation of samples from Marinker's work in anime dubs for manga entertainment. Based on the evidence, the credit was added to various film credit databases and mentioned in other sources and reviews. In a 2020 interview, so this is recent, in a 2020 interview with filmmaker Dominic Hallstone, Marinker confirmed that he was indeed responsible for looping most of Jones's dialogue in secret, but that some of Jones's lines were left intact based on the strength of his performance of them. That's from IMDb. Yeah, for the longest time, I had no idea. Oh, you can't, I, you can't tell. I had never known that until recently. And then you watch it and it sounds like him. doesn't feel like it's ADR'd that much. I, I don't know. I'll touch on it later. I'll touch on it later. All right. There, there is a scene where you can hear the difference. Okay, cool. So Lorenzo Semple Jr., who wrote the screenplay, was surprised right. to find out that his first draft of the movie turned out to be the shooting script. How rare is that? I mean, if you're a screenwriter, everything's a rewrite. Everything gets rewritten. Yeah, yeah. Even Lorenzo would tell you that the movie needed a, re- a rewrite. But Dino liked it enough, and they started production on that script, which Mike Hodges made tons of changes while shooting. That's just crazy to think your first draft is the one that goes through for a $20 million production. Oh, absolutely. And I don't want to hopefully step on any of your upcoming trivia fun facts. Yeah, that's but okay. This, this was an issue with the film was it was a translation issue because you were dealing with English crew and Italian crew, Dino De, De Laurentiis being Italian. And you have... A right, you know, they they went through a couple of writers, and we end up with Lorenz. Is it Lorenz? That was his name. Uh, Lorenzo. Sorry. Lorenzo, and Dino had an Italian translator who I guess wasn't very good. Oh yeah, and she, you know, there's some funny stuff about that. This is all in the research you can find. So Dino didn't apparently wasn't too concerned with the translation. He just wanted to know what the general story was. But then Mike Hodges comes in direct, and he does his own thing unbeknownst to Dino De Laurentiis, like, so there's communication issues and the story gets changed and nobody knows what the hell is going on and uh, including the actors. So the actors, and this is all again in the research, they play it straight. They're just like, okay, we're just going to be as professional as possible. And nobody's quite on the same page to what the tone is. They're not telling us what the tone is. So we're just going to play it straight. And they did. And then Dino De Laurentiis thinks this whole thing is supposed to be straight. And then Mike Hodges had his own take on it. And then they're looking at dailies and the crew is watching the dailies and they're laughing. And Dino De Laurentiis is like, why are you laughing? <laughs> this is serious. Yep. They're like, no, this is camp. This is really funny. Good job. He's like, oh, right. And that's one of the things, because, you know, you've brought up the camp. So Lorenzo, he was one of the writers for the Batman television series. Right. Yeah. And also wrote the Batman 1966 film. So he definitely had some background in comic book adaptions and camp. It makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. But he also wrote Three Days of the Condor, which is a great movie. So not that I'm saying Flash Gordon's a bad script, but. No, 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 no. My humble opinion is, is that this movie is one giant happy accident because it's an amalgamation of different styles 
that are colliding and clashing. And this is the result. And when you have actors that actually weren't aware that this was a, an attempt at camp, if it was even an attempt at camp, they played it straight because if they hadn't played it straight, this would have been a ridiculous movie. Yes. Thank goodness they played it. The actors played it the way they did because then it comes off like, in my, again, humble opinion, it comes off as good camp, as unintentional as it may have been. It works. I, I don't know. That's, yeah. It's kind of crazy. I was going to throw a quick fun fact in here. Supposedly, yeah, Flash jumping towards the camera screaming, yeah, was uh, at the very end. Just such an awesome moment. It was yes. improvised by Sam Jones. Nobody could figure out how to end the movie. <laughs> I love it. This is that Max von Sydow's main costume, speaking the costumes, weighed over 70 pounds. Good Lord. Could only stand in it for a few minutes at a time. That's not fun. Hey, man, this was my, I believe, wasn't this, or I don't know if he was a runner up or if he was my, hey, I think it was my, hey, it's that actor from Raiders Lost Ark was George Harris. Yes. Katanga. Yes. Who is Prince Thun of Ardentia. And this is funny, man, because I'm so used to hearing, you talked about the soundtrack and how there are quotes from the film in the soundtrack yes. built into the music. And I'm so used to hearing his voice saying, uh, what is he, what is it? The people we of Ardentia. The, we, yeah, we are the people we of Ardentia. You yeah. know, since you, lay, you blasted our kingdom and the way he says it and his inflection. Yes. And I watched the movie today. I'm like, oh, he says it differently here. Oh, he does? And then I read this. Okay. In the finished film, George Harris, the actor who plays Prince Dunn of Ardentia, his dialogue was dubbed. His voice is on the Queen soundtrack album, indicating that the change must have been made fairly late in post-production. Oh, I got to go listen to that now. The hell? I never caught that. Isn't that weird? But because I've listened to that damn soundtrack yeah. so much, I'm like, I know the reading of the line. And then I'm watching the movie going, he's saying it differently here. It was dubbed. Uh, see, I never caught post. that. Oh, I'd love to see but it. it was, but the soundtrack was done before. I love when I learn stuff on my own podcast. That's awesome. Right. <laughs> Is that crazy? Yeah. So Brian Blist, who was a lifelong Flash Gordon fan and always pretended to be Prince Voltan growing up, he jokingly told producer Dino De Laurentiis when he met him for the part that if he didn't cast him, quote, now, you don't want to die, do you, Dino? Because if you deny me this role, I promise you, you won't last until sodding lunchtime. <laughs> Dino, Dino offered him the role on the spot. Wonderful. That was great. Good old Brian Bless. During the shoot, he couldn't help himself when he was firing his cardboard blaster. He kept going, pew, 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 pew. <laughs> You always hear stories about that stuff, too. Right. I always love that. No, damn it. Brian, stop making the laser noise. Oh, speaking of the the combat disc scene. While they were filming that tilting disc fight scene, the actors would get covered in paint by the disc because the disc itself was spray-painted silver. So they would have to take extra time between each take to wipe silver paint off their bodies. I actually read that was the most miserable set to be on because the way they had a light, they had to use so many lights to light it. It said it was just miserably hot oh, on yeah. that set because of all the lights. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's it's a really bright set. So I can imagine. Everything's reflecting. That was not fun. Yeah. Since we're talking about that. So for the fight scene between Flash and Prince Baron on the combat disc, 
The spikes were made out of 50 bicycle pumps that were rigged upside down with silicone tips. So if the actors accidentally fell in the spikes, they would just automatically retract back into the disc. And then the air pressure would slowly bring them back up, making sure no one got hurt. I always wanted to know what they were made of. That, that was That's like, cool. Yeah. I was like, I like wow, that. that's kind of ingenious. Yeah. Did you know 13 actors from the James Bond movies appear in this movie? I can believe it. Yeah. Because you'd think, all right, so Timothy Dalton and Topol right off the bat. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to name them all right. Yeah, I certainly do believe that. And this is fun. Just a little history. We know that, and this is in all the research, that George Lucas initially, before making Star Wars, wanted to work on a Flash Gordon film or some or something close to Flash Gordon had gone to Dino De Laurentiis to, I guess it was get the rights to do it. And De Laurentiis said no. So George just said, oh, dang it. I guess I'll just make Star Wars, uh, which was good. It was good for George. But because the original Flash Gordon serials were a major influence on George Lucas' Star Wars, this film was made largely in response to the success of the first film. It also featured two future Star Wars cast members. Yes, Brian Blessed appears in our favorite Star Wars episode one, The Phantom Menace. I believe he's Boss Nance, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. As soon as I heard that voice, I was like, wait, that sounds like Prince Fulton. Yeah. And I was probably like, that sounds like John Ray Stavies. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But so Brian Blessed is in Star Wars episode one, The Phantom Menace, and as Boss Nance. And Max, Max Van Cito is in Star Wars The Force Awakens. They both end up in Star Wars movies. So I thought this was interesting. So the role of Dr. Hans Zarkov was down to two actors, Topol and Warren Oates. And the casting department didn't know who to decide. So Dino De Laurentiis made that decision on a coin flip, supposedly. Oh. Now we had Warren Oates recently in Stripes. I can't see Warren Oates as Zarkov. I'm surprised he's one of the final two. Yeah. I guess he could have been. I don't know. I'm just so used to Topol, I guess. Would have been different. I don't know. So we were talking about how much we love the models and the matte paintings. So the model for Ming's Palace was 25 feet tall. Oh, sweet. That is one big MNF and model. Yeah. And that's all I got for fact and truth. Yeah, I'm done, man. Yeah, let's move on to box office. So Flash Gordon was released on December 5th, 1980. On an estimated budget of $20 million, it grossed $27.1 million domestically. It debuted at number one at the box office with a $3.9 million take, but was bounced the next week by Stir Crazy, which made double that amount during its opening week. Um, It was the 18th highest grossing movie of 1980. So you think 18th highest grossing it would be okay. And supposedly it did really well in England. Yeah. They really love yeah. that movie because of Sam Jones walking off, no sequel. Um, so let's move on to reviews. When growing up in the 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of Flash Gordon was split. Roger found the movie to be deliberately old-fashioned and corny. And because it was so silly, so outlandish, and so deliberately dim-witted, he found it fun. Gene thought it was a cute premise that just didn't go anywhere and found the action scenes boring. What? Here we go. So this was cool about watching this episode was the scenes they previewed was before Sam Jones's voice was ADR'd. 
Ah. So you hear his original voice in those scenes. So you can tell if you, so if you watch the actual movie and then watch that. So they show the, um, the scene where Zarkov basically holds him up, points the gun at him at the rocket. Right. And tells, yeah, and tells yeah. Flag, yes. So it's that scene and there's no music in it and there's no sound effects. So it's natural dialogue, natural, everything, natural sound that they show right. in the previous clips. So you can tell that you can tell that it's his voice is different because you hear That's his actual cool. voice. Okay. There you go. And then the other scene they show, I think, was when they present themselves to Ming the first time. I didn't watch that one just because I, I just kind of wanted to hear what Roger and Gene said. But yeah, go find the clip online. And I will. You'll, that's you'll, crazy. you'll hear the difference. There you go. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. Now I hear it. So yeah. you hear, yeah, you hear his natural voice. That's, I thought that was kind of cool. So yeah, that brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Flash Gordon. Well, you know, uh, here's my thing with okay. the question is, what do we do with Flash Gordon now? What do you do with it, Bill? What do we do? We Do we reboot it, remake it? And I have my own take on it. I think what I would like to see. Okay. And maybe you can give me your take. Here's where I'm at with it. Like I said, I love the movie. I've always wanted to see a sequel. I've always kind of wanted to see it redone, but I know if I was tasked with that, I wouldn't know what to do because I feel like anything I would do, people would just complain because it's not, even though we, we complain how it's campy and it's weird. I think it would still, people would still want that. If you, if you go in a different direction, they're gonna be like, well, wait, what happened to what came before? I have no idea how to tackle it. Yeah. As much as I want to see another one, I just don't know what you would do. Because there's so many elements of that movie that I love, but if they're trying to make like a serious version of it, I almost think I would be disappointed because I want the Sam Jones Flash Gordon, but you can't do Sam Jones Flash Gordon. Correct. And I think that's why we really haven't seen anything besides a TV show that what like went five episodes. Right. That was unsuccessful. Yeah. And yeah, it just didn't work. There have been the talks very recently too of Taika Waititi. Uh, was it going to do an animated version, then switched over, was now going to do the live action version. That's the latest. Uh, I think he would be right for it. Yeah, because he kind of has that tongue in cheek. It takes a delicate balance. I mean, you yes. think about Thor Ragnarok, of course, is what he's really now known for. Taika Waititi's done a lot of other things, but he can walk that fine line of action comedy, right? And uh, uh, not blending it. Yeah, I think he's a great choice. I, I do too. I think he's as good as it's going to get. Yeah. If he can't pull it off, then no one's ever going to be able to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to get into the casting. What ifs, you know, how would you cast it today? Who would you place in these roles? But you'd be racking your brain. And my, what I would like to see, and I hope it doesn't come off too artsy or anything, but I just, I would pay homage to the 13 part serial, the original in this way. Instead of trying to remake the original serial or the 1980 film version, make it a continuation. This is a to be continued. We saw a question mark at the end of this movie. And let's make a Netflix series, a streaming series, Hulu, Amazon, Apple, whatever it may be. And we get a modern version, but we get either descendants of Flash Gordon or, or related characters, but 
you can freshen it up in that way. I'd like, but serialize it, like make it kind of a serial. It has to have comedy. It can't be played. I do not think this can be drama. I don't think it can be played serious. It has to have an element of camp. It probably would have an element of a meta nature about it, self-aware nature about it. So you'd have to get some really, I would like to see some up and coming, no uh, name actors in it, to be honest. Let's get some fresh faces in it. So I would like to see a, a continuation series, not a reboot or a remake, but that really pays homage and also gives a lot of respect to the precedent that has been set, meaning respect the story that came before. It's not try and retconning a bunch of things. It's actually saying, yeah, that all happened. And now this is what's happening. You know, that would just kind of be cool, I think. Yeah, I think it'd be hard to do because, I mean, Flash Gordon was a response to Buck Rogers, and we haven't seen anything about Buck Rogers since they did the TV show in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, jeez. It's, it's, it's another one. It's like, how do you approach it? Right. So I, I just don't know. Because it would be great to get like, and then find an unknown, like rock, like a rock, an upcoming rock band, like another operatic, like rock band that could score it, or a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that would score it, you know, or a somebody to get that kind of that flavor, that, that music, but it's hard. Then would you be accused of just copycatting too? I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's just so hard, but that trying one. to do the same thing over again, you know, but modernizing it, et cetera. It's, that's a tough one. It's really tough. Yeah. I've thought about it every once in a while and I've never come up with a solution. I'm like, how would you actually do this? Here's a real serious question. Okay. What are boar worms? I don't think I want to know. No. No. So who picks up Ming's ring at the end of this movie, Bill? So what I read, supposedly Clytus. And right. supposedly Clytus is actually a Ming clone. Oh, I hadn't read that. Yeah. So the thinking was, if something happened to Ming, then Clytus would then, you know, it's basically Ming anyway. See, to be honest, give me that series. Just do a spinoff and it's Clytus. You know what I mean? Just go yeah. go different and it, it's in the same universe, but Clytus is our, is our lead. Mm -hmm. I would love to see that. Easy enough. He's wearing a mask and stuff. Yeah. Peter Wingard's great too. I love his voice though. Yes. But I guess Ming gets absorbed by the ring, so it doesn't technically die. But it does look like, I mean, it's the, the, the black gloved hand. It does sound like Clytus at the end, his voice mm -hmm. or his laugh. Why didn't anybody pick up that ring anyway? There's, there's another complaint. Like they show the whole scene when they're all praising Flash. I'm like, oh, they cleaned up the rest of the throne room, left the ring there. That was very smart. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All right. That's true. Cleaned up everything else. You, you missed a little pile of rubble there. It's a pretty important mm -hmm. pile of rubble. Yeah, my other, the only other question, Matt, was really, uh, is the Flash theme one of the best theme songs of all time? I think we've answered that. Yes, and yes. Uh, so here's my quick question. Dale Arden or Princess Aura? Princess Aura. Okay. Yes, Princess Aura all day. Yes. This is, I, I, I'm telling you, this, is the, this was where I discovered I had an inclination I, that I leaned towards the bad girl or that that was within me. Because then I would go on to be, I like, as we all well know, the Elizabeth Shue fan, give me the that cute, the girl next door, pretty, you know, all American. But that was my type. There was a D 
deeps. There's a seed planted within me. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is cute for sexy. It's like, if you brought Dale home, your mom would be super excited for you. It's like, Oh, you bring Aura home. Your oh, dad, she's nothing wrong dad. with Dale Larton. Very pretty. She's yes. great. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, you guys are going to have wonderful children and happy family. But yeah, you bring the princess home and your dad's secretly doing fist bumps every right. time he leaves the room with you. Like nice job, son. All right. And then your mom's upset because you brought the bad girl home. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. My parents would be like, yeah, secret. Like, yeah, again, see, yeah, that high five behind mom's back, but also like, just be careful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I get it. I get it, man. I yeah. get it. Well done. Well done. But, uh, Make sure you have your shirt. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, you watch your back too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, we talked about trust, right? Do you know what? Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't trust her. Mm-hmm. Don't get in too deep with that one. Um, so another additional thought I had, I was, I was very excited watching this time because for the longest time, and this goes back to the football fight scene, when Clytus talks to the guards during the football scene and he says, you fools, he's playing some barbaric game match him like this i yeah. always thought there was going to be another line i thought he was going to explain to him i never realized like he was showing them what to do oh <laughs> so i was always like wait what's the next line like what, what, you, what you what like match what like this dot 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 what clitus leaving us hanging i was expecting some oh, yeah. advice <laughs> and then they would just run off i'm like what happened what did i miss what's your brilliant what? tactic clitus I never got that. I never really got that. Funny. So I watched this time and then I was like, oh, God, you're a dumb, dumb. Right. So I felt a lot better. 41 years later, finally figured it out. Yeah. When listening, you have to worry about. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention again, um, if you are a big fan of this movie, definitely watch the documentary Life After Flash. I can't wait to check it out. Yeah. And what's really scary, though, is because the year before I had watched a documentary called Becoming Bond, which uh, focuses on George uh, Lazenby, who was James Bond for one movie, uh, which is on your Majesty's Secret Service, which is a very underrated Bond. Their career paths, I swear to God, are almost the same. Wow. It's almost like George had this opportunity to be Bond for the next couple of films, and he totally blew it. And Sam Jones almost kind of did the same thing with Flash. where he, right. Like I, we mentioned, where he walked off set, he could have done sequels and he blew it. And it's weird. It's huh. really weird how much those two actors roles kind of are almost like the same thing. Yeah. If you're into documentaries, watch those two. You'll be surprised how much they see the power. Great recommendation. Love it. All right. Anything else? Nope. That's it, man. All right. So let's move on to recommendations. What is our recommendation for Flash Gordon? Did we like this, Jason? Do we think people should watch it? <laughs> Do you think people would still enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, I adore this movie. I love it. It's close to my my heart. It's uh, part of my makeup. I, like yourself, was excited to watch it today. And as soon as the music kicks in, as soon as the credits start, and that cool graphic of the target comes into focus and on the oh, planet yeah. Earth, like you see the red, like almost they look like lightning bolts that come from the edges of the screen. Yeah. And, oh. Great stuff. I was totally pumped. I was pumped watching this movie. So much fun. Uh, There's so much story behind it now. Uh, We know just between the lore of the, you know, the world within the movie and then outside of the movie, it's great stuff. So here's my thing. 
although it is unintentionally funny at times, unintentionally campy at times, it succeeds in being unintentionally genius. So watch it for the pure fun, laughter, and then ultimately cheer. All hail Flash. 100% recommend it. Yes. I'm the same way. I mean, even trying to watch it this time and trying to be a little bit critical and, you know, like I said, you see some of the flaws in it. It's still so much fun. Yeah. You're cheering at the end, man. When he jumps up and goes, yeah, in the freeze frame, you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, you did it. You saved the day, man. You saved Earth. You saved all these people. You get the girl at the end. Yeah, man. Just, it's a blast. It's ridiculous. And it's great. And I'm sure everybody listening to this loves it as much as we do. And, um, you know, hopefully we brought something to the table. You have not heard about it or that was the thing too. watching this movie. When I watched it, there wasn't anything I was like, oh, I forgot about that. I remember just about yeah. every frame of this movie. Forgot to mention that. Nailed it, Bill. I'm glad you brought that up. Same here. Same here. This must be, this is probably in my top 10 most watched movies of all time. Pro- yeah, Probably. You know it forward and backward. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I haven't seen it in, I probably haven't seen it in about three years. But yes, if, if you're a fan and you haven't watched it in a while, yeah, pop it back in. It's still so much fun. The music rocks, costumes rock, sets rock. Absolutely. And thanks for letting us share this with you. This one is all about the shared love. This is a fun one to find some commonality with fans, you know out there and just it's this is a great movie to talk about with with fans Mm -hmm. sci-fi and fantasy great stuff man all right so i think that uh, about wraps up for our 50th episode thank you so much for listening next week we'll be discussing the 1988 comedy spoof the naked gun from the files of police squad starring leslie nielsen priscilla presley and ricardo Montalban. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at allthesenewspodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a truly great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>